This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Hope is a good thing, right? I'm going to sell you some hope today right off the top of the show. For those of you who read me today, you understand that the Pac-12 was a mess behind closed doors. I was really conflicted. I was wrestling in the last couple of days, especially. Really the last week or so. Wrestling with, what did I miss? What was going on that all the presidents and chancellors, the people in the CEO group that I was speaking with, were all saying everything's fine. Everything's trending in the right direction. We're going to get a good deal. It's going to be a layup to beat the Big 12's number. What did I miss? It was keeping me up. I was dreaming about it. And so something caught my ear just a couple of days ago as the presidents started to come out and talk. You had John Carl Schultz at the University of Oregon. President, new guy on the job, about a month into the job, who was talking about Oregon going to the Big Ten. You had Anna Marie Casse, the president at Washington who made an interesting comment about the deal that was presented by the Pac-12 not being the deal they talked about just a few days earlier. That caught my ear because all along, I had actual people in the room telling me, we're gonna get a good deal. We like where this is going. And then all of a sudden, it's not the deal we talked about. It made me wonder Did they see a deal? It jumped out at me. It's like one of those Perry Mason moments. And so I went, I circled back to several sources inside the Pac-12 offices, including some of the CEO group members who were out talking publicly. And I said, did you not see the deal? And what I learned was that the Pac-12, George Kyofgob, the Pac-12 commissioner, who, by the way, I'm going to unpack a whole bunch of stuff on the leadership front when it came to the commissioner job on today's show that I think is really interesting and helps explain what happened, what went wrong, how the Pac-12 got in the position it is in today. But the uh, Pac-12 commissioner, George Klyovkov, hired a firm run by a college classmate of his named Doug Perlman. Now, Doug Perlman has got a consulting firm that is, it's a good firm. It's, it's, it's done some good things. It's uh, experienced. He's been in the industry. He's been in that space. But where he hasn't operated is in the college live sports programming space. This was kind of new to him, this whole deal. And that caught my eye early on. And I had another consulting firm, and I thought it was just sour grapes. Tell me, hey, I think they made a mistake with the consulting firm hire. Said that to me pretty early on. But I dismissed it. I kind of waved it away as, well, that's what you say when they don't hire your firm. What ultimately became clear, though, in the last 24 hours to me, is that the consulting firm that the Pac-12 conference hired closed the circle very tightly. 
kept a circle of just a handful of people who were actually working on the deal. Uh, the details, they were called the deal team. The details of the negotiations, whether they were talking with Fox or ESPN or whatnot, were all kept within that circle. And ultimately, they did not share uh, the final numbers and the final detail until they made that big reveal on that Tuesday. And, of course, Colorado could not get out of the room fast enough, and the Arizona schools ran off to talk to the Big 12. And then Oregon and Washington were like, hey, man, we don't, we don't love this deal. Uh, you know, should we should we just be in the, you know, go to the Big Ten or should we at least be talking to the Big Ten? And it sort of sparked not an exodus, but it sparked a lot of fact finding and a lot of exploration by some members in Colorado uh, very quickly announced they were leaving for the Big 12 conference. Now, I look at that and I started asking more questions about what went wrong. And what I found out, I wrote it today at johnconzano.com is very interesting. First and foremost, the Pac-12 last October was approached by ESPN. ESPN approached the Pac-12 conference, told the Pac-12 conference, we'll give you $300 million for all of your rights, everything. ESPN would have owned it all, owned the Pac-12 networks, owned football, owned basketball, men's and women's, owned it all. They would have had it all. It would have been under their command, $30 million per school and distributions, guaranteed money, five- to six-year deal, would have kept the conference together, Period, end stop, over. They offered it. Uh, George Klyovkov turned and brought that deal to his presidents last October. And so his presidents, in their mind, had a $30 million a year deal that was put on the table in front of them. They surveyed it and ultimately decided it was insulting. Now, there's some hubris mixed up in this. Bad leadership, hubris, misfires, miscommunications, uh, hollow promises, uh, the moving of the goalposts. There were a lot of sins that were created and 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 happened during the last uh, 14 to 18 months when you look at the Pac-12. But the biggest one of them all may be the Pac-12 conference CEO group looking at that $30 million deal from ESPN and deciding that it was insulting. They didn't know the market. They were they just saw the Big Ten conference uh, sign the deal with Fox that w- that gave them a $70 million, $68 million a year valuation per school. And they were insulted by the offer of $30 million. And so those presidents and chancellors told George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, go back to ESPN, tell them we want $50 million. The Pac-12 had lost the LA TV market but still believed it was worth $50 million. They wanted $500 million, not $300 million. ESPN, I am told by a source involved in the discussion, heard that and then pivoted and said goodbye. They never again came back to the table in a meaningful way. ESPN pivoted, joined forces with Fox, and uh, ended up uh, just several weeks later announcing a deal with the Big 12 Conference that gave the Big 12 $31.6, $31.7 million per year in annual distributions. Had the Pac-12 simply negotiated and said, no, we think we're worth 35 or we're worth 38 or we're worth 40 even if they had pitched 40 instead of 50. There's a possibility that ESPN would not have said goodbye and ESPN would have come back to the table and that the Pac-12 conference would still be the Pac-12 conference. You'd have all your traditions. You'd have all your rivalries. You'd have everything that that uh, seemingly was part of the Pac-12 before it imploded last Friday. A uh, big mistake to send that deal back to ESPN. And I put some of that on the chancellors and the presidents, but I also went in much more detail today in right and i put some of this on george kleofkoff the pac-12 commissioner as well 
You have to be able to manage the room. You have to be able to know the market. You have to not hire your friends as your consultants. You need some outside voices in there. And I can remember Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports president, coming on this show and saying, hey, I think the uh, Pac-12 schools are somewhere around $30 million each. He knew the market. Why didn't the Pac-12 know the market? It's a question that I think will haunt the Pac-12 conference for years to come. Now, it brings me to an interesting topic that I've been thinking about. I'm selling hope on today's show. I hope that Oregon and Washington go off into the Big Ten and they're competitive and they can matter in that conference. Uh, I hope that they have success on their on the playing field there. I also hope that the Pac-12, the remaining four Pac-12 schools that don't have a home, will regroup. They still have A5, Autonomous 5 status. They've hired consulting firms. I'm working on writing something on this front, but it appears to me that the Pac-12 may be uh, making a rally here in the 11th hour to put the Pac-4 back together and add a couple of schools and take a run at trying to be an autonomous conference with Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal being part of it. Keep an eye on that. Again, I'm peddling some hope because if you think about it, you know, the college football expanded playoff says that there are five automatic bids. The Power Five, the autonomous five conferences get an automatic bid. Then the sixth bid goes to the next highest ranked conference champion. It's designed for the group of five teams to have access to the college football playoff. Well, by virtue of that, if you are the Pac-4 or the Pac-6 or the Pac-whatever they become, you have an opportunity in two ways to create access to the playoff that is very interesting to me. And I had uh, one of the consulting firms talk me through this today because I said, well, what happens if the Pac-12 conference or whatever we're going to call this thing goes back to the NCAA Council and says, hey, we just want to be an autonomous five. We're Stanford. We're Cal. We're Oregon State. We're Washington State. That's what we were yesterday. That's what we are today. How can you say that we are not the same schools that we were before, even though uh, we had other people around us? We're still deserving of an automatic bid. And uh, the prevailing thought is that there would be some momentum for the Pac-4 or 6 or 8 or whatever it's going to be called to remain an autonomous conference. But if it wasn't, all the conference would need to do, seemingly, is add two members become a recognized conference in the eyes of the NCAA. They would become a group of five or group of six conference, whatever you want to call it. But the, if they had a uh, one of the top six ranked champions, the winner of Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, Cal, and whoever they add, would get an automatic bid to the college football playoff. There's a, there's a chance that that conference could participate with some regularity, some frequency in the college football playoff ecosystem. These are interesting times. Again, I'm peddling some hope today, but uh, with the news that the ACC, probably not that interested in Stanford and Cal. In the Big Ten, just no appetite right now to expand to 20, not for Stanford and Cal. Uh, with that coming down the pipeline, I think there is a little bit of momentum and a little bit of hope here for Oregon State fans and Washington State fans who feel largely left behind by what happens. So yes, in a best case scenario, could you have Oregon and Oregon State playing a rivalry game in the college football playoffs someday? I, I don't think it's unthinkable, given that Oregon looks like it's well-funded, well-positioned to compete for one of the multiple playoff spots in the Big Ten, and Oregon State, if it stays in the Pac-4 or 6 or whatever we're going to call it, uh, to be able to win that conference. Can you beat Stanford? Can you beat Cal? 
Can you beat Washington State? Whoever else they put in there, is it SMU? Is it San Diego State? Can you come out on top of that? I would think Jonathan Smith would uh, have a smile on his face if he looked up and said, okay, this is your competition. You beat these schools, and you are uh, one of the top six-ranked uh, conference champions in America. Uh, you're going to have an opportunity to play against uh, you know, the Big Ten Conference or the SEC's at-large, uh, uh, at-large teams. It's really an interesting time. Uh, and, and I think as we are unpacking, because a lot of what I wanted to do uh, in the last few days was kind of look back a little bit, what happened, what went wrong. As you start to think about what comes next, what will happen, and you start to get forward thinking with, uh, with what's going on, I think it becomes a very interesting conversation. I want your phone calls. We've been taking a lot of them on this show in the last few days. I've loved it. You're adding something to it. You have smart takes. You're making me think about things I, I never would have thought about before. But as I present that opportunity to you, the possibility of Cal and Stanford and Washington State and Oregon State staying together as a conference, using their emergency funds that are remaining in the Pac-12 conference coffers to go out and pay the buyout fee for San Diego State, to turn to SMU and say, hey, you always wanted to be part of a Power 5 conference. Well, no one else is asking, and we still have Power 5 status. Would SMU take a leap of faith? and make a bet on the Pac-4, Pac-5, Pac-6? And would it be enough to convince the SEC, the Big 12, the ACC, and the Big 10 that the Pac-5, 6, 7, 8, whatever, is it good enough still to be a Power 5 conference? Not by competition standards. I was reminded by a consultant. has nothing to do with the quality of the football programs. has to do with the makeup of the schools. And in fact, within... The council's bylaws that determine who are the autonomous five, it literally lists the schools, Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State, all covered by that umbrella. It's a really interesting conversation, and I think it gives a little bit of hope for people who have gone, college football is dead, college football is over. It may very well be that those things come to be true, but there still appears to be a twist in the story left or some chapters left to read. 503. 417-7575 is the phone number. I want to kick this around with you. I want to know what you think of it. I want to know where your head is on this stuff, and I want your phone calls. Let's go right out to the phone lines. Sean is in Vancouver. Sean, what's up? Hey, John. Hope you're uh, doing well today. So, uh, hope is the first step on the road to disappointment, John. Um, You know, with the problem is NIL, and the problem is being seen. Uh, these kids, you know, Oregon State has a great shot this year. They really do. They're a good team, and I think they have a chance at, you know, taking the Pac-12. But next year, the, the, the transfer portal opens, and those kids who are no longer going to be on big network TV that have a shot are going to be gone. And I hate to say it, but, you know, okay, they can still be called the Power Five, but the level of competition, Vanderbilt's in the, co- in, in the Power Five, but they are not a football school. Neither is Cal. You know, okay, so you're in the Power Five. I, I don't see it working out for them in the long run where they get to retain this quote-unquote Power Five and that automatic bid you talked about, you know, when the, when the Mountain West has better football teams, that's who's going to get the, the, the five, whether they're Power Five, quote-unquote, or not. It's, a, it's an interesting point. I would disagree that hope is the first step to disappointment. I hate when people say hope is a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with hoping. Hope to me, hope is the first step towards victory. You got to hold on to some hope. You got to have hope. 
you got to believe, as Ted Lasso says. Uh, I ultimately think, I, I think the caller's right in that the level of competition would not be there. But we're talking about two different things here. One, this football season, you're right. Oregon State, I think, has a puncher's chance to get to Vegas, win the conference championship, and threaten to uh, be in the playoff conversation at the end of the year. Only four teams in the playoff this year, 12 teams in the playoff next season. Uh, but there, it's two different things. One is this season, yes. Two, you're right. The transfer portal could become a problem for Oregon State in the offseason, at the end of this season. It's why the next two weeks, I think, become really important for Oregon State. Oregon State's got to send a message to the kids on their roster that they are trying to stay in Power 5 conference football. And I don't think necessarily Apple TV has to be the answer for the Pac-4 or the Pac-6 or the Pac-8. Remember, ESPN and Fox both came in late to the Pac-12 conference and offered to buy a handful of games. I think Fox wanted like 13 games. There's a chance that the Pac-4 or 6 or 8 could be made for something like that. There's not huge media money there. But there's some linear TV options, maybe with a blend of Apple, that's available to whoever is trying to get this thing going. And I find it very interesting that Washington State, Stanford, Oregon State, and Cal have all hired consulting firms, all different firms. I've been working a lot to find out who's working, are there common interests, and it appears to me, for the time being, that Stanford has zero interest in joining the Mountain West Conference. So Stanford is highly motivated to make this happen. Now, Stanford, while it's not a great football school, it has played some good football in the past. Ten, You go back 10, 12 years, you can look and say, hey, Stanford played some really good football with David Shaw and Jim Harbaugh. But Stanford brings a brand to you. It brings the Bay Area TV market to you. There's value in Stanford and Cal, uh, not value that the Big Ten or the ACC wanted, but there's value that, you know, having media market number five, number six, plus uh, a couple of schools that are uh, the finest academic schools in the uh, western part of the United States. So you have some selling points there to uh, create a tentpole, so to speak, or at least a post inside your conference. Now, you've got Oregon State and Washington State. They don't bring great media value. But if you can pivot out of that and you can grab a San Diego State, and you can grab an SMU, you all of a sudden have Southern California and Dallas-Fort Worth, maybe you have a media deal, to the caller's point, that can get you on linear TV in Dallas, in Southern California, in the Bay Area, in the Pacific Northwest, and can get your members $10 million a year. Like, it's not a huge deal, but it's something that keeps you afloat in the next two or three years, which is what everybody's looking for. See, Stanford's not thinking 20 years out right now. Oregon State can't afford to think 20 years out. But... Oregon can. Oregon did. Oregon said, hey, we're going to do what's best for us for the next couple decades. We're going to join the Big Ten. I don't behoove them for that. I don't blame them for it. I, I think, though, that they're in a different position, these teams that have been left behind, because right now they're looking for a life raft. They're, they're clinging to each other. Will it work? We'll find out. Is it a pipe dream? I don't know. I can tell you this. I reached out to San Diego State. I reached out to SMU. I had an official at one of those schools tell me, there are a lot of things in play right now, which is really interesting to me. Steve's in Lake Oswego. He's online, too. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Great show. Great uh, articles, as usual. Um, and I apologize uh, to change a little bit around because I, I tried to get in yesterday. You were so busy. But um, I disagree with you a little bit on whose fault this whole mess is. Uh, I own my own business, and I learned a long time ago, John, that you've got to hire the right people in the right place doing the right thing. 
And, you know, if I hire somebody and they're doing a crummy job, whose fault is that? Sure, maybe the person, you know, that's doing the bad job isn't as good as I thought, but it's my job uh, or my fault for hiring that person. So they hire Scott, he does a terrible job, and then they compound it by hiring, you know, a George George, or I can't pronounce his last name. Um, and it, it doesn't make any – and then everybody's trying to blame, you know, them. Well, it's not their fault. It's the president's and, you know, all these – people that run, you know, the athletic department that hired these guys in the first place, and they're the reason why they screwed this whole thing up, John. So uh, yeah. I, I'm just, you know, I've been following the Pac-12 since 1966, and I'll tell you, it's, it's the biggest disappointment in, in my life simply because, um, you know, when the softball team or uh, the volleyball team goes over to Rutgers uh, for one day, uh, you know, competition, it, it's just ridiculous. The kids yeah. are going to get worn out and they're going to get beat up, but, hey, the school's making money. But anyway, that's all I wanted to mention. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with you. I, I love your analogy, too. You talk to you talk about it from the standpoint of a business owner, and you're right. Ultimately, it goes back to who did they hire. Uh, I raised this point in print today. You know, I was not a big fan of Larry Scott. Everybody who listens to this show or reads me knows that. I thought he was terrible. I thought he needed to go. Uh, I didn't like his management style. I didn't think he was particularly a great human being. I, I just think there was so much wrong with what Larry Scott was doing. But... I also can acknowledge, like, he was a self-preservationist. He was a guy who loved spending time in Southern California. He was also tuned in to USC being very unhappy. He had a kid who was going to school at USC, and he spent a lot of time uh, in Southern California eating uh, eating at fine dining establishments and staying in five-star hotels. I kind of think what happened, and tell me if you own a business or if you're somebody who's worked in a company, you can, you can see what I'm what's happening here. But the Pac-12 CEO group got rid of Larry Scott, who was abrasive, not very collaborative, not very collegial, kind of out for himself, did what was in his best interest, a shrewd negotiator, especially on behalf of himself. Uh, they got rid of that guy, and they replaced him with George Klyovkov, very collegial, very nice, very collaborative, a guy who was always smiling, very optimistic, um, you know, very inclusive. And I think that correction makes sense to me. Like, we see that happen all the time with football coaches. What happened? Arizona State's got Herm Edwards. He's got guy, old guy, veteran coach, NFL experience. It doesn't work. What do they do? They pivot 180 degrees, and they hire Kenny Dillingham. Youngest coach in college football, never been a head coach before. It happens all the time. Those, those corrections happen left and right and right and left. And they do that because they go, okay, we don't want that anymore. We need the opposite of that. Well, the Pac-12 CEO group hired the opposite of Larry Scott. And while George Klyovkov, I think, is smart, and I think he's nice, I think he's kind, I think he's trusting, I think he's collaborative, that's not what you want in the room when you're fighting for your life and you're negotiating with, with cold-blooded killers. Fox, ESPN, their consulting firms. I think in the end, I think the caller's right. Like, you can put some of this on the presidents, on the chancellors, of course, because it all traces back to them. They're asleep at the wheel. Bad leadership, bad leadership in that CEO group, bad leadership, not asking enough questions when George Klyovkov's saying, trust me, trust me, we're going to get a good deal. Um, but it makes sense to me. That's why they were telling me now. They were telling me everything's okay. We're all in this. We're going to be fine. And then all of a sudden they weren't. They weren't fine at all. Uh, and in the end, I think I have a picture now of what was happening behind the scenes. And I kind of think, I was told by you know, a, a, a person who works in the Pac-12 offices a source in the Pac-12 offices who worked for both Larry Scott and George Klyovkov said, hey, uh, you know what, I, I, say what you will about Larry Scott, 
But uh, we uh, we did not play good chess in this, and he would have been a better chess player. I think the self-preservationists might have saved the damn conference. More of your phone calls, 503-417-7575. I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. We have two pairs of Mariners tickets. Is two pairs we have to give away, Judah, or one pair? What do we got? What do yeah, you got? two pairs, a pair for each game for uh, two games in this weekend series with Baltimore. Ooh. So you got to be able to go this weekend. But if you can, we got some tickets for you. All right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, listen in this segment. Listen carefully. And then at the end of the segment, uh, or maybe in the beginning of the next segment, I will uh, ask you a question about something that was said or something that happened in the next 10 minutes of radio. So it's a very simple game we're going to play to give away these tickets instead of just saying, okay, caller four. No, you, you pay attention. And, uh, you know, it may be the next caller I bring on. And I say, well, what did Pat and Longview say was the biggest key like whatever the case i will give the uh the uh, person who gets that question answered correctly the uh, two pairs of tickets and on that note the phone number is 503-417-7575 pat in longview is on line one pat a lot of pressure on you what's going on uh actually i wanted to talk about something that hasn't been mentioned okay discussion i think ultimately in- college football to a place where they don't know what's and it's this how oh, athlete pat pat what kind of pat are you on a landline or a cell phone cell phone all right what's who's your cell phone uh, provider okay how long does it take the pac 12 or how long does it take the pac 12's women athletes to go to court because I think be. this ultimately winds up in the Supreme Court. It may not be, uh, you know, you're right. You're, there could be a Title IX issue there, but um, it may not be the women athletes of the Pac-12 Conference who bring that lawsuit. It could be the non-revenue generating athletes of the Pac-12 Conference. And, and on that note, I noticed that Washington State uh, Board of Regents has a special session meeting scheduled for tomorrow and the subject of that meeting is potential litigation i don't know if washington state is going to move to sue washington are they going to sue oregon and washington are they going to sue george kliavka hell they might try to sue me i don't know i don't know who they're going to sue judah who do you think they would sue if washington state's going to file a lawsuit oh that's so buckle up man this is just the beginning um man i have no idea i would i guess i would say you dub Maybe there's a little bit of precedence there. I have no idea. Mm. Maybe you dub, like you mentioned. Maybe uh, Fox. I, I think mm. what you keep mentioning about you know Fox and then I trust. Man, it feels like there's legs to that. Yeah, and and I somebody told me today that the antitrust issue could extend to the conferences too if they tried to take a five status away from the Pac-12. There could be an antitrust suit saying, "Hey, you colluded to damage the conference." and take away the Autonomous Five, the Power Five status, uh, which is why I kind of think there's some incentive here for Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State to stick together. And I do know they've hired some consulting firms. I'm working on identifying who those firms are and trying to talk to them. But does that do anything for you, Judah? Like, does it kind of get your juices going? Like, if those four go, you know what, it's cool, you guys took off, but we're getting the band together and we're going to rebuild this thing. 
Yeah, this gets me fired up, the fact that they want to kick back and fight back because I've been a little, you know, down in the dumps about the future of Oregon State and, uh, you know, the remaining Pac-4 teams. And if Stanford and Cal left for the ACC, that makes no sense to me whatsoever, and that would be another kick to the gut. So banding together, trying to rebuild this thing from the ground up, it feels like it's a major underdog story because guess what? That's what the remaining four schools are. They are underdog stories, especially Oregon State and Washington State. So galvanizing at a time when literally everyone is counting them out and fighting back, hell yeah, I'm all for that. I love that. I think uh, it would get a lot of people... You know, and I think even the schools that left might look back and go, yeah, that's good. Because uh, for them, like if you're an Oregon fan or an administrator at Oregon or Washington, I have to think that something that weighs on you is, did we just kill the conference? And if the conference isn't killed in the wake of you, I do think it makes it better for everybody. Uh, let's go to Sean, who's in Sandy. Sean, welcome to the program. Hey, John, what else are these guys going to do? I mean, they're not being taken anywhere. They're not being accepted. So, I mean, that, that's the only thing they got left to do. Well, Washington State and Oregon State could go to the Mountain West. The Mountain West would take them. But I actually so think they're better better off sitting alongside Stanford and Cal if they can make a go of it. That's, that's, a, that's a for sure. Because if they go to the Mountain West, that's a step backwards. They're not even a, a big-time school anymore. Yeah, I would uh, be interested in what the transfer portal would look like. Uh, who do you oh, root for, day, Sean and Sean and Sandy? Who do you root for? Who's your team? Um, I root for all all schools to do well, but I've always been a front runner. I'm I'm always been a Ducks fan, but I always root for the Beavers too. Beavers are great. They they had some great teams, you know, back when uh, Jonathan Smith was a quarterback, you know, and uh, they had some great teams then. I mean, they went to the Fiesta Bowl. I love that. You know what they did to Notre Dame. Have a great day, John. Love that. I think it does matter who you root for. It, I find that a lot of times when I come on the show and I'll talk about something that pertains to Oregon, the Oregon State fan, you know, feels left out. And if I talk about Oregon State, you know, I get emails or tweets or whatever from Duck fans who say, you know, uh, why are you talking about Oregon State so much? Um, it happens, right? It's just natural. There's a tug of war. And in fact, back in the day when I first got to the paper, there was an Oregon State fan who would call the newspaper's newsroom every day. He got his ruler out, and he would measure the size of the photographs and the copy inches, the number of inches in each column dedicated to the ducks and the beavers, and he kept a tally. And I was like, man, you you guys are a little different out here. Like, right, this is a little different. Like, why are, you know, this thing that goes back and forth, you're paying more attention to the other school. But I actually think this conversation... And I think the reason why this conversation is so interesting to so many people is that it has tentacles that extend beyond the natural borders of the rivalries in the schools that you root for. I didn't know when Sean and Sandy was calling in if he was a Duck fan or a Beaver fan. I didn't, you know, I don't know when people. In the last couple of few days, I haven't been able to tell as frequently as I can. I don't know if you've had that experience in listening to the show. Because I think so much of what we're all experiencing is universal. There is a universal loss of tradition and nostalgia. Whether you are a Duck fan or a Beaver fan, a Husky fan or a Cougar fan, you've, you're, you're, on some level you're lamenting the loss of tradition, the loss of nostalgia, the loss of uh, you know the brand of the Pac-12 conference, what was 108 years, all of that. 
you're lamenting that. You're absorbing that. You're probably walking around your house at some point going, I can't believe that happened. Um, and Or you're sitting somewhere. Now, uh, and I think that's universal. I don't think, I don't think like, you know, I'm sure Duck fan, part of you, are, uh, Duck Nation or whatever you call yourselves, are uh, sitting there going, hey, it's going to be really fun to see Oregon play in the Big Ten. But on some level, as John Carl Schultz, the president of Oregon, said in that board of trustees meeting on Friday, on some level, you're, you know, you're human and you're able to, uh, you're able to express more than one emotion at a time. And so you're conflicted. Uh, and, and for Beaver fan, Beaver fan, you're anxious, you're angry, you are also lamenting. There's like a Venn diagram of, hey, the loss of tradition is, is everybody. And I think you're in on that. And so I do think I hear as I talk to people in, in the wild, so to speak, that's what I say, as I talk to you in the wild, if I see you in the grocery store or a restaurant or just in passing or you're delivering the mail or walking your dog, the conversations I'm having are very interesting. They're layered. Yesterday at the end of the show, okay, Anna and the girls uh, are out of town. Uh, they went to the coast. So I was on my own for dinner. And I, at the end of the show, I went out and I went to like this place that's really close to my house. I just wanted to grab something real quick and go back. But I went into this place where there's no way in hell that people would be talking sports. It's kind of like I, the one place I know I would go where I probably wouldn't run into a lot of sports fans. And in fact, as I walked through the doors, it was almost empty. There was only one table with four people sitting at it. And it was uh, uh, two couples, looked like they were out on kind of a date night together and uh, you know they were in their 50s or 60s and I kind of walked by and I picked a table all the way at the other side of the restaurant and I sat down by myself they brought me a menu I said I don't need one I'll take this and I you know I ordered chicken and rice okay simple just want to sit there but I could hear the couple talking and the couples were talking about Oregon leaving for the Big Ten Conference and I overheard one of the gentlemen say to the other one, how did you know, where did you hear about this? And the guy said, well, I was listening to the bald-faced truth. And I just went, here we go. This is what's going <laughs> to happen. And so uh, eventually they looked over and I said, you know what? I think everybody's talking about this story. And, you know, here's these two couples out on a date night. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the ducks and the beavers and how sad it is. And this is good for Oregon. How could Oregon say no to that much money? But how can Oregon State not feel terrible about this? And the loss of tradition for us all is a thing. And I think that that's why this story's got so many tentacles. And I think, Duck fan, if you're being real, you're probably not rooting for Oregon State to end up extinct. You're not rooting for them to end up in the Mountain West Conference. You're, you're probably hoping on some level, hey, yeah, it'd be cool if they could put that conference back together again. You know why? One... It gets the blood off your hands if you're Oregon. You know, the, the perception that Oregon killed the conference by making that decision uh, goes away. And two, it creates somewhere for Oregon to come back to eventually someday, particularly if they, if they uh, separate football from the non-revenue generating sports and they say, okay, football's just going to do its thing. The Oregon Ducks women's basketball program, the baseball program, the volleyball team, they got a conference to come back to that they can play in. And it, guess what? It would be called the Pac-12 or 16 or whatever it's called. I don't know. Leave it here. you got the BFT. We're going to give away some Mariners tickets coming up. If you think you can answer the question, uh, just call in. 503-417-7575. I'll give you the question right after this break.
You know, we were talking about the Orioles the other day, and they uh, suspended Kevin Brown, their broadcaster, for basically telling the truth on the air, just saying, hey, we didn't play very well last year. We were 3-18 and against the Rays. Now we're better. They suspended him. Big outcry over that. I did a big rant about how some of these organizations, when they uh, when they act like this, it's systemic issues that infect them. And uh, we got another story on that front I'll tell you about here in just a second. I also want to give away two pairs of Mariners tickets. If you were listening in the last segment, you are uniquely qualified. You know how American Express says membership has its privileges. Well, listening to the show is like an American Express membership. You have privileges. If you were listening in the last segment, you are uniquely qualified to possibly win two pairs of Mariners tickets for this weekend's games. So we're going to give those away here momentarily. I do have a couple lines still open. I'm going to ask a question about something that was said or happened in the last segment of radio. You should, if you were paying attention, be able to answer this question. Uh, 503-417-7575. I think we can take one more caller. We have one line open. It may not get to you, but if uh, some of the other callers miss the question, it will get to you. As a listener playing at home, Will you be able to get the question? What am I going to ask? What is the question? Oh, I know. I know what it is. The minute it was said, I said, oh, that's the question. Um, but I want to talk for a second, just a moment, about what is going on in the uh, small world that is the Las Vegas Raiders. In 2015, the Raiders fired their broadcaster, Greg Papa. He's a great broadcaster. Voice of the Raiders. Really good broadcaster. Uh, unfortunately, he went on radio with uh, our old friend John Lund, who used to be on this station in Portland, the flagship station of the BFT radio network. And uh, they talked about the Raiders interviewing Mike Shanahan and what a mistake it was and how horrible it was. And it was terrible. And they criticized the Raiders. And Mark Davis, the Raiders owner, fired Greg Papa, removed him as the broadcast voice. Greg Papa has continued to do radio and continued to cover the Raiders and apparently was at a Raiders practice uh, during uh, train, NFL training camp, and the Raiders are still holding a grudge and are not allowing Greg Papa to stand where other media members stand or have access to the, to the uh, I guess, participation that other media members can have, and he's not making a big deal about it. But our old friend John Lund on KNBR in San Francisco, who is on air there now still, uh, went after the Raiders a little bit, and uh, and Mark Davis uh, on his show. Uh, if you missed Pop at the top of the show, he is live on the sidelines, although the Raiders are being, he can't say it, but I can. They're being extremely petty. Uh, the league should know that. It's stupid. Uh, get over it. Uh, we all know the story. It was from a previous show that he and I did together, and, and he and Mark didn't get along on a certain topic. Dude, you're an immature idiot. Get over it. They're not allowing him to have the same access as other media members on the field. The guy who has worked for your organization for 21 years, he can't say it. He's not saying it. I'm saying it. It's stupid. It's you immature. A little grass. bit here. I'm getting order. <laughs> Some intern is telling a guy who was the voice of the Raiders for 21 years, sir, sir, get off the grass. Sir, sir, you can't use those binoculars. Sir, sir, the rest of the media can go here, but you can't. I mean, are you kidding what a joke. What a jo it makes your organization look stupid and petty, just like John Angelos of the Orioles. Come on. How ridiculous is this? He can't say it. I can. Come on.
Anyway, I'm over it. It's, I, I disagree with Lund a little bit. Like, it does make them look stupid and petty. But I also think it is stupid and petty, and I think it is reflective of a bigger problem. It's indicative of a bigger problem within the organization. And I have to tell you, the Blazers organization for years has battled this. I think it comes, in the Blazers' case, from the heavy-handed feel of Vulcan Inc., in the Seattle-based mothership that sort of oversees the operation. It's a tech company and an investment company, an equity company, all wrapped into one. There's a lot of security. There's a lot of, over the years, remember, they were going through people's computers, trying to find out who the leak was when I was publishing things. And I can tell you, uh, you know, it, there was a lot of, there's a lot of petty crap that goes on. And I mentioned it the other day. I, you know, I didn't make a big deal about it when the, when the Blazers took away my credentials several years ago and said because, uh, you know, I criticized Neil Olshay, I would no longer have a season credential. Uh, they, uh, they said, you can still come, but you have to apply game by game. Send us an email each game. Let us know which games you want to come to. Uh, it's just petty, and it's stupid, of course, but it's also reflective of a bigger problem. You, what are you worried about media members? This is the stuff you're focused on? They're fo- the Raiders are focused on Greg Papa. The Orioles are focused on what their broadcaster says about the team. For crying out loud, it is petty. It is stupid. But the bigger picture is, if you are focusing your energy on that stuff, what are you not doing that good organizations do? And by the way, I have to think this isn't the only stupid, petty thing that you are guilty of if you're the Raiders or the Orioles or, in fact, the Blazers. Uh, it's uh, indicative of bigger problems. It's a culture problem. And I think a lot of times it comes with organizations who have sort of a czar at the top that everybody's afraid of, who has that kind of power. You don't see big ownership groups with no face to them and, uh, and organizations acting this way. It's usually kind of a pyramid of power, and the person at, top, at the top is way too powerful, and the organization just gets really focused on pleasing that person at the top. That's how you keep your job. If you are a middling executive, you are a VP, you are in charge of sales and sponsorships or media, you keep your job by not pissing off the person at the top. So don't know anybody say anything about that person at the top. And I'll tell you another story that involves the Blazers. It just it shows you the sort of Greg Papa, Baltimore Orioles small-mindedness. Years ago, when Paul Allen was still alive, he would do an annual kind of visit with media at the Rose Garden. He would occasionally, it wasn't in his nature, because he really wasn't comfortable in front of the room, but he would occasionally... At one point of the season, usually around the All-Star break, do a media availability with everybody who's covering the team. Okay? It didn't happen all the time, but it, it would happen. And so one year, Paul Allen showed up, and, and uh, I was told by the president of the organization, uh, you know, uh, but, but I found out he was doing a media availability, and I, and I went to go to it because it was down this hallway at, at the Rose Garden Arena. And as I was there, I was stopped at the door by the president of the organization. And Sarah Mensa, who was acting as the president, said, Oh, no, 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 we're only allowing one media member per entity into the room, which was kind of silly. It was their way of saying, uh, Paul, we don't want to put you in the room with Paul. Yeah, Paul doesn't like you. And, you know, and we don't want to it was it was them basically being afraid of Paul going, who let him into the room? I didn't want him in the room. And he may have said, I don't want him in the room. 
But it just shows you how eye off the ball these damn teams get, and the Raiders have their eye off the ball. No wonder the Raiders don't have any success. No wonder, like, the Baltimore Orioles are not, like, you know, a perennial winner. Keep an eye on the Orioles. They look really good. But I have to tell you, sometimes when you have issues inside your front office, little things like this are big red flags. Keep an eye on what happens with your Baltimore Orioles and your Raiders. Tell me if I'm right at the end of the rainbow. All right, in the meantime, we're going to go to the phone lines, and uh, we're going to see if you could answer this question. You ready, Judah? You ready for the question? Uh, Pins and needles, yes. Okay, two pair of Mariners tickets to two games this weekend to the person who can correctly say what I ordered for dinner at the restaurant I mentioned in uh, this segment in uh, the last hour. Who, what line do you want to go to first? Ooh. You pick it. Let's try five. All right. Line five. It is Joel in Longview. Joel, are you a big Mariners fan? Oh, yeah. Love the Mariners. Tell me, uh, who's your favorite Mariner player of all time? Of all time? Probably got to be Edgar Martinez. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like that. All right. So here it comes. Here is the question. You get two pairs of Mariners tickets if you can tell me. What I ordered last night for dinner. Of course, you uh, you went basic and went chicken and rice. Congratulations. Who are you taking with you to the Mariners games? Oh, man, I have to take my wife. There you go. That's a given. Okay, when she hears this, you say, I get to take my wife. Of course. <laughs> I get to take my wife. All right, I'm going to put you on hold. Congratulations. Have fun at the games. Judah will, uh, and the staff there will be uh, taking your information. Coming up, we're going to play some Punch It audio. I love that he got that right, right away. Uh, sorry for everybody who was holding. You had a chance, okay? You had a puncher's chance if he missed it. Um, uh, we're going to play some Punch It audio and Christian Cable to talk Washington coming up. Well, we're going to play some Punch It audio this hour. We'll go to Seattle, Washington with a great Christian Cable who covers the Huskies. He's going to give us the lay of the land. On Montlake, the Huskies. Were the Huskies practicing at the Seahawks practice facility today? Is that what's going on? Something going on with the Seahawks practice facility. A little different feel. Does Washington use that as a recruiting advantage? Hey, we're going to take you to an NFL facility every once in a while. Kind of interested in that. Uh, we'll play some Punch It Audio. The 5 at 5 will be coming up top of the hour. If you want to read me today, uh, I wrote a deep dive on what went wrong. The Pac-12 Conference, the Confederacy of Dunces, or the Pac-12 CEO group. I don't know. Smart. How do so many smart people do dumb things? Just because you're smart doesn't mean you're going to do smart things. Those are smart people. Like I talked to the presidents and chancellors, and... Uh, I pride myself on trying to be the dumbest person in the room all the time. That means I'm hanging out with smarter people than I am. I think you can you, you learn and you get smarter in that circumstance. So I try I try really hard to be the dumbest person in the room. So when I talk to those presidents and chancellors, I leave going, I barely understand what they're talking about. I try to understand. I'm taking notes. But uh Presidents and chancellors of the Pac-12 made some mistakes. So did the commissioner. So did his consultants. The gun was empty, one source told me. You can read that at johnconzano.com. Hey, by the way, I asked the caller. 
I asked the caller who their favorite Mariner was of all time, and he said Edgar Martinez. That was his favorite Mariner. Anytime I hear Edgar, I hear one of two play-by-play calls from Dave Nihas that pops into my head. And for Mar- longtime Mariners fans, you know what I'm talking about. Judah, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which of these two calls pops into your head? Because I think they're kind of interchangeable in a lot of people's minds. But I wonder with diehard Mariners fans. Okay, there's the, there's the uh, this call on an Edgar Martinez at bat. And John Wetland one more time set. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez now. And the fastball swung on at the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get out the right bread and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. And the Mariners lead it 10-6. I don't believe it. I mean, yeah, a little bit of goose uh, bumps, hair on your arm standing up there. <laughs> so much. A little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's it's either that call or this one. They would love a base hit into the gap, and they could win it with junior speed, the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double. Ripped down the left field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom. Man, which of those two calls? That's so tough. That's so tough. I personally have to go with the winner, the actual series yeah. winner, the double Two run double. Line. Just Two run double. Yeah. And for what that meant, you know, obviously, and, and uh, the Kingdom crowd going absolutely bonkers. The late Dave Niehaus still with us at his peak, going to the ALCS, the Mariners to the ALCS. Are you kidding me? So nice. I, I got to yep. put put that one in there probably. Yeah. I, I love when the way he calls it. Okay. This used to be a peeve of mine as a as a uptight media member. It used to bother me when the hometown broadcaster wouldn't correctly identify the players. And I and and this happened frequently for me early in my career when I was covering the Big 10 and covering basketball in the Midwest. The broadcasters because they were on Indiana or Purdue or Michigan or Michigan State would often use nicknames or first names or just the last name for the player and it drove me crazy. Because as a visiting media member, I didn't know who he was talking about. <laughs> but Niehaus on that call says Joey and Junior. You know? Mm-hmm. I believe he's talking about Joey Cora. That's right. And Ken Griffey Jr. And But he says, Joey, Joey's going to score. Here comes Junior. <laughs> and everybody knows who he's talking about. Yeah. I can't remember who wrote on this. Somebody wrote that when he says, here comes Joey, and you're right, it's it's Cora, it kind of sounds like here comes Joy. Joy. And it's like Joey. this perfect dual encapsulation of the moment, right, as well. Because it's like, yeah, it's, it's an incredibly joyful moment. He's like, here comes Joy, round third. Yeah. Here comes Junior. It's like so perfect. And, you know, by the way, for Mariner fans know this, but the Edgar Grand Slam, that's game four of that same series breaking a 6-6 tie to go up 10-6 in the in the ALDS and then you know to uh 
to to win it in advance to the ALCS is just incredible. Edgar is an incredible player. How much more special was it? And I know the Mariners don't have like an illustrious history with the play playoffs, mm. but how much more special was it that it came against the mighty Yankees? Yeah. No question, right? No question. And that's this is right before. This is so interesting, right? Because Derek Jeter, he his rookie year is ninety six. So this is pre Jeter Yankees ninety five. And what happens in ninety six and Jeter gets there and you know, they Joe Torrey is still trying to, you know, work his way into in fact I don't even remember if he was on the Yankees in ninety five, Joe Torrey. But um but in any case, yeah, absolutely. The Yankees were still the behemoths that you're trying to take down. And the fact that the Mariners were able to do that, just from a brand standpoint, if anything, is was massive. And that was right before things started to heat up in the Bronx in the, the yeah. latter half of that decade. The, when I went to go cover Fresno State in the late 90s, the hometown broadcaster, there was a player named Demetrius Porter on Fresno State's men's basketball team. He was a pretty good guard. But the hometown broadcaster called him Michi. And all he would say is, Michi's got the ball. Michi's got the ball. And I used to go, call him by his damn name. Like, <laughs> you're driving me crazy here. But Michi's got the ball. Like, what if somebody's just tuning in? They don't know who Michi is. But listen, I'm going to play it again. Here, Here is the RBI double, two-run double. Beats the Yankees. Edgar Martinez at the plate. But listen to Dave Niehaus as he calls Joy coming around third. And here comes Junior. They would love a base hit into the gap, and they could win it with Junior speed the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double. Ripped down the left field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom. Here's the other thing I, I had not noticed about the call. How prescient is it that Neha says they're looking for a ball in the gap so they can take advantage of Junior's speed? <laughs> and it ends up not in the gap. It's down the line. But it is. he was thinking in baseball terms. He knew the team. He knew the situation. Yeah, it's so prescient, and that's that's one aspect of being a great play-by-play man that uh, can often get overlooked is anticipation of the moment, being able to set it up concisely, letting the tension breathe, and then letting the moment deliver, and then capturing it. Like Dave, gosh, he was he was one of the best, and uh, you don't have to tell people in this market that 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 grew up listening to him. And for me, like I was starting to really come into my own, you know, as a as a baseball fan that loved baseball on the radio. Niehaus passed away and kind of handed the the baton to Rick Riz right as I was getting into middle school, high school, and that's kind of blended, you know, into my into my baseball fandom. But there's something so pure, so right, you know. And in this world of chaos in college football and tradition being ripped out from under our feet, even you playing those highlights, JC, it reminds me, dang it, there's still something fundamentally pure and awesome about (laughs) 
baseball on the radio in particular and those big moments. And I don't have to tell you that either. I know that you grew up in the Bay Area listening to some of your favorite guys like you know, on uh, on KNBR and yeah. the like, and yeah, so many Hank of Greenwald us. and Ron Fairley, yeah, it was the yeah Giants. Even, Giants win the pennant. I had uh, you know a few years out in Chicago and just tuning into Pat Hughes on 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 Cubs radio, or tuning in down to KMOX and getting a little bit of Mike Shannon for my Cardinals from time to time. Like, dang it, that is still such a pure part of of sports fandom that I still hold dearly. And I know baseball on the radio isn't what it used to be, even, but. Man, that that's still special. I appreciate you playing those. Yeah, we got to do it, and we're going to play some more coming up. Let's do some punch and audio. The best set from all over. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for punch and audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start in baseball, where the Philadelphia Phillies had a no-hitter. Is it Michael Lorenzen? Michael Lorenzen, in his second start, was acquired at the trade deadline by the Phillies. Punch it! Two-pitch. Swung on, popped up, shallow center field. Rojas sprinting it, he's under it, he has space, makes the catch, and Michael Lorenzen has thrown the 14th no-hitter in Philadelphia Phillies history. He is being teammates as the Phillies shut out the Nationals 7-0. There it is. No hitter. Phillies had a couple of nice moments. They had a rookie who was a 29-year-old rookie just yesterday. hit a home run in his first major league at bat. Now a very emotional pitching performance from Michael Lorenzen who throws a no-no any given day. Titans assistant coach Terrell Williams uh Getting an opportunity to be a head coach for a preseason game on Saturday against the Bears, what does it mean to him? You know, he kind of mentioned uh, something about two weeks ago. He said, hey, we're going to expand on this role kind of in passing. And it's like, okay. And and then maybe about a week ago he said, I want you to take over and um, and run the team for this football game. And, and I was excited, obviously. I mean, just uh, – um, be in front of the group and, and take control of everything. I think it's a big honor, and I think Mike Vrabel deserves a lot of credit. All right, he deserve, deserves a lot of credit, not just for doing this for me, um, but I think around the league, hopefully more coaches will give assistant coaches opportunities to, to do this because there's no, like you got all these different programs um, but there's nothing more better than actually getting the experience. And, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for doing that. It's really interesting because you've seen the NFL do some things with the Rooney rule and trying to create opportunities for, for coaches, people of color in the game to get opportunities, FaceTime visibility. Uh, raise your hand if you had not really heard of Tara Williams, the Titans assistant coach before today. Um, good, good on Mike Vrabel. Good on the Titans for doing this. And and this opportunity extends beyond game day. He will take over being the starting head coach, starting with the team meeting on Thursday night. He will formulate a plan for who's going to start at quarterback, how the game reps will be situated. He'll have to devise a plan for the starters to play in the game. Uh, this is all pretty good. And, I, you know, this is a defensive line coach who's been with the program, with the franchise for five years. He's now been promoted to assistant head coach. Um, it's pretty cool. 
I like it. I think it's a good move. I think we're going to see more of it. Ron Rivera staying in the NFL. He's fallen on the sword today. Washington Commanders head coach says he put his foot in his mouth as it pertained to criticizing Eric Bieniemy publicly. Here's Rivera. We talked about it, and it was just, I basically told him, I put my foot in my mouth. Um, I think what I said wasn't as clear as it needed to be. And I think the understanding of, of, of it is just the fact that I think everybody's making, in my opinion, a little bit more than needs to be made of this. Because, again, the results are what you're looking for on the field. And so far, the last couple of days have been outstanding. I think Eric has done a great job of communicating his message. Tough position for the head coach to be in because it's not like the Washington Commanders head coach has got a lot of ground, a lot of footing there. And he has to kind of manage not losing his locker room. And he's got players that are bellyaching about Eric Bieniemy's style. Um, and I think Ron Rivera got himself into a into a pickle. He's in a bad position. Remember, Bieniemy came from the Kansas City Chiefs where he had Patrick Mahomes. The expectations were different. He walks through the door, raises the bar, and you know, players are going, hey, we don't like this. We don't like the way he talks to us. We don't like the way he criticizes us. Bietemi spoke out after getting criticized. Here's what he said. Well, first of all, one thing I am, I'm an open book, and I always invite players in. But also, too, as I've, I've gone through this process, yes, I am uh, intense, and I would be afraid, too, to start if I didn't know him. But on top of that, one thing they do appreciate is this. I'm always going to be up front, and I'm always going to be honest. Just like I stated when I first got here, we all got to get uncomfortable to get comfortable. Okay? There's some new demands and expectations that I expect. I expect us to be the team that we're supposed to be. It's not going to be easy, and everybody ain't going to like the process. But when it's all said and done with, my job is to make sure that we're doing it the right way. There's a way to do it. Now, do they understand that? Yes, because they're seeing the results. Will everybody buy in? I believe so. But if not, it's okay. Because you know what? My number one job is to help take these guys to another level. And I can see it. Because when you think about where we started in the spring to where we are right now, we're making a lot of strides. I'm proud of these guys. It's been some, excuse my language, some good to watch. <laughs> Eric Bietemi. I get the impression there's no middle ground for him this season. He's either going to be a wild success or a complete flameout. And I kind of like what he's saying there. And it'll be interesting to see if the commanders can get some success. But he's not going to lower his standards. I like it. Pete Carroll, he's got standards too. What is he looking for? Tonight, Seahawks, Vikings, preseason opener. Punch it. Running and hitting. See, get these guys out there, really. Really get the, the full speed stuff. This is, we, we want these preseason games to give us the chance to make sure that we're at that. Uh, that mentality and technical side of uh, what we need to do, we'll find out how you know what we need to work on and all. But we got uh, three full weeks to do this, and uh, you know, almost 200 plays to, to get it done. So that's what the preseason games are really important to us. Really interesting. Last year, I thought the Seahawks overachieved. They went nine and eight last year. They were the seven seed in the NFC. Not good enough to, you know, really matter, but really a nice season by by standards in a. You know, of a team that was seemingly in a rebuild. Judah, can they take a step forward? They still are in a division with the Super Niners. 
it's going to be tough to get by San Francisco, but what's what's a good season win-wise for the Seahawks? I, I got 10 wins, and I think that's good. I think there's a chance to get to 11, but I love setting uh, tempered expectations and then being surprised. I had so much fun last year when my expectations were three or four wins, yeah. and then they blew it out of the water and made the playoffs. Are you kidding me, this team? So... I had such a joyride last year, but I really think they're better this year. The pieces they added on defense, and then not to mention uh, getting one of Chip Kelly's running backs to add depth to your running back room, and Zach Charbonnet is a great fit. And then Jackson Smith and Jigba, you know, the Ohio State receiver who went for 350 in the Rose Bowl against Kyle Whittingham. You know, we got him now. So I'm so excited. Um, And the 49ers on paper, they're a better football team. That's just just injuries seem to bite the Niners every other year and I'm wondering I'm not rooting for this to be clear but I'm wondering guys <laughs> are you rooting for guys to get hurt I'm trying not to yeah. say it out now but I do okay. wonder you know if that's a if that's an actual thing I thought the Seahawks you know first of all they won the Russell Wilson trade part one there's another part to this trade what will Russell Wilson do this season will you know is there a is there a comeback or a bounce back for him and you know, but right now it looks like that was a knockout trade for the Seahawks. That was part of their success last year, too. Is that you know Denver wasn't having success, and it made Seahawks, made the Seahawks uh, nine win season look really good by by those standards. I also think I always say, you know, you're never as good or never as bad as people say. Never as good, never as bad. Also applies to the parity in the NFL. I kind of wondered last year. If the Seahawks just had just enough experience, just enough Pete Carroll, just enough Geno Smith trying to prove something, that they had kind of a much better than expected season. I, I don't know. I don't know what was going on. Can can they get better at the quarterback position? Does he have some room to grow, or is he kind of what he's going to be? Oh, I mean, I guess I don't really know because I didn't anticipate him performing the way he did last year. There's definitely room to grow. I mean, he's far from perfect. As fun a season as it was you look back at the last six or seven weeks and he was not as good in the last six to seven weeks as he was at the beginning part of the season and um, you look at what's coming on the schedule for Seattle this year they have to play the 49ers twice in a three-week stretch with the Cowboys sandwiched in between with the Eagles after that I mean it's gonna be a crushing finish to the air and keep in mind Seattle at the end of the day they needed help from the Lions on the very last game of the season to make the playoffs it's not like you know, they started 6-3, and three, but they still they, they lost enough power where they needed help from Detroit, who had still, really nothing to play for in order to make the playoffs. Still a great season. It was oh, a great season. Such a season. great season. Yeah. I, had, not, I had the most fun I've ever had in a season except for, you know, winning the Super Bowl in 2013. Isn't it funny how expectations kind of frame that? Because yeah. it's kind of like when Oregon State and Oregon both won 10 games last year. And the Beavers fans were ready to throw a parade, and the Duck fans were so disappointed. There were some <laughs> questions about Dan Lanning's leadership. Like, it's yeah. it's just, how do you frame your expectations? Bigger expectations this year for the Seahawks. They play tonight against the Vikings. Speaking of the Beavers, DJ Uyunglele. That's right. He is talking about the mentality at Oregon State and what he loves about it. Here's the quarterback punching. For me, man, I feel like the brotherhood is really tight here, and I love the it's almost like a blue-collar mentality here. That's probably the biggest thing I love. Like, man, we just when I first came in here, that was the first thing I noticed from the coaching staff. I feel like it starts with Coach Smith, but from the coaching staff to the players, like there's no egos at all. And that was one thing I loved. Like everyone just came in here, 
They're like, man, you're accepting me, but like, at the end of the day, man, we just all come here and work. There's no, there's no egos, there's no star player here. It's just everyone just comes in, put a hard hat on, and just comes here and just puts the best foot forward and just works their ass off. So it's been great. I love that part. I like it. I like it. He's flocked in. He's focused. Oh, he is going to be such an interesting player. He might be one of the most compelling players in college football to watch this season because nobody quite knows what he's going to be, and especially in a system and with a coaching staff like the coaching staff at Oregon State. Meanwhile, at Oregon Ducks offensive lineman Johnny Cornelius. He is a transfer from Rhode Island. He's projected to be the starter at right tackle. He was asked about the new transfers and how they're acclimating in Eugene. Everybody just embraced us. So uh, it's really just a matter of connection. That's a real emphasis on the team. It's connected with each other and bonding. So every day I'm out here, I just try to be as close with my brothers as possible. But I feel like a real team. Sounds like uh, both these programs have big expectations this season. Uh, Oregon projected nine and a half is the over-under on their win total. Oregon State is nine. Keep an eye on these things. Um, I think these programs are going to arrive at the end of the season playing with a lot of emotion and a lot of success. What about Washington, though? Christian Capel, he's coming up. He writes for a publication called On Montlake. He covers the Huskies like none other. We're going to ask him what's going on with the Huskies on and off the field. I like quality writing and reporting. There is a shortage of it out there. But I'll tell you who does it well. People always ask me, who do you read on this beat? Who do you read on that beat? person I read when it comes to the University of Washington is our next guest, Christian Capel. He's been at this a long time. He's a true professional. He has uh, done what I have done. He has launched a pirate ship. He's gone rogue, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's called On Montlake. You see him on Twitter, at Christian Capel, and you can occasionally find him on this radio show as I bring him on, drag him onto the show, kicking and screaming. He's joining us now. How are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm a little bit, uh, like, my duties around the household have been neglected because of all the Pac-12 stuff. So I'm, uh, you know, like, I, I'm bringing in the trash cans that have been out by the curb for four days. Stuff like that. <laughs> I know how that goes. I uh, I was at Costco not an hour ago, so there you go. <laughs> Catching up. Um, oh, by the way, I'm a big fan of Costco. I think I think Costco. We oh. can learn a lot from Costco, could we not? Oh yeah. I mean, I I don't know that there are a whole lot of corporations that are run more efficiently than Costco that treat their employees better than Costco does. Um, I feel like if you become a Costco member and you go there regularly, it's like a an 80% chance that you kind of become an evangelist for them. And I'm, I'm on that train for sure. <laughs> I love it. And you've just been there, which is such a testament. It's not like people coming home from Disneyland going, never again. I don't want to do it. The lines were terrible. You know, it's it's uh, it's a ringing endorsement. Um, look, uh, the Huskies, I, I, I saw your piece today, and you're doing a hell of a job. How can they possibly be better on offense? You're writing about how they might be better on offense this season. Yeah, I don't know in terms of how they finish statistically within the conference and nationally and all that. There's not a lot of room to, to go up. Maybe the numbers themselves can go up. But I think the players have a feeling like last year, it's easy to forget, was year one in an offensive system. So you know, for Michael Penix Jr., it wasn't. He started running that offense as a redshirt freshman in 2019 when Kalen DeBoer was his offensive coordinator at Indiana. And I talked to him about this at Media Day a little bit. You know, hey, Dylan McMillan made this comment this offseason that he thought you guys just scratched the surface last year. What do you think he meant by that? And Penix said, well, it was my fifth year in the system, but it was all those guys' first year. And 
you know, if you're Jalen McMillan, if you're Romo Dunze, if you're one of those offensive linemen, it's probably only natural to feel like your understanding of the offense and your ability to execute it without thinking and all those sorts of things is going to be better in year two than it is in year one. So a lot of stuff has to line up and there's, there's injury luck and they got pretty fortunate on that side of the ball last year that way. So there are some things that aren't totally within your control that, that have to fall the right way for them to build on last year. But I think with all the pieces back and with it being year two and, and maybe, you know, the few hiccups that there were last year or the, the few miscommunications that there were, maybe they feel like they can clean those up. Um, I think they feel like they, they've added some wrinkles and there's probably more that Ryan Grubb, the offensive coordinator, is comfortable giving them and asking them to do. And it, it, it won't feel like too much this year when it might have felt like too much last year when they were just learning it. So um, it's, it's as confident of a group as I've probably seen on that side of the ball at Washington. Super impressed with Penix Jr. on media day. Had a great interview with him, and I thought, gosh, he's a normal kid and, you know, uh, obviously a very experienced quarterback. Uh, we're talking to Christian Capel on Montlake.com. Covers Washington football. Obviously a big week. Uh, last week, Friday, Washington and Oregon to the Big Ten. Um, the reaction you had to that, were, did it surprise you the way it unfolded? You've spoken with Anna Marie Kasse, the president at Washington. What has that been like? Yeah, it was, I'd say by Friday, um, going to bed Thursday night, I think you were talking about a couple of fan bases in Washington and Oregon that were expecting to be in the Big Ten by the end of the day. So then the developments of Friday morning, you know, oh, wait, hold on a second. Maybe the Pac-12 is going to pull this thing off. There's a call this morning. It sounds like they might stay together. I think that was the surprising element of it. You know, I don't know that that would have shocked me to hear that two months ago. Um, because it did seem like there was a lot of optimism from presidents who spoke what little they did, and George Klyovkov presented such a confident front in media day and felt like everything kind of kind of deteriorated after that. But it's it's been strange. You know, I think people are, are kind of sorting through mixed emotions. There are not an insignificant number of folks who uh, I think the day USC and UCLA left the conference felt like, anything shy of Washington ending up in the Big Ten would be a disappointment and that the sport was headed that way. And whether it was this cycle or the next cycle in five years or however far down the road, that that was kind of probably where Washington needed to be. So it wanted to secure its future and have a, a seat at the table and all those sort of things. So I'm, uh, it, you know, it, it's thinking about just the fact that the Washington is going to be in the Big Ten and the Pac-12 may not exist in any form is a lot to get your head around. But it wasn't hard to predict on June 30th, 2022, that, that this was kind of the, the end game, whether that was going to be now or, or a couple of years down the road. So I'm not shocked. Um, I'm a little surprised that so much confidence was put out there by the conference commissioner. And um, mm -hmm. it did sort of seem like there was momentum toward, well, maybe they'll get something done. But um, by, the, by the time it all shook down, it kind of seemed like that was going to be the inevitable conclusion. You've got an athletic director in Jen Cohen who grew up going to the games, holding her dad's hand, walking across the bridge into the stadium, and um, now she's running that athletic department. I have to think there's some emotion and tradition and the rivalry mixed up in all of this. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I know Washington has said that they, they're committed to continuing the Apple Cup and, and playing Wazoo across all sports. It doesn't seem like the – that sentiment is as strong on the Washington State side. I know Pat Chun said yesterday that, hey, whatever decision they, gain, they make, it's not going to be an emotional one. It'll, 
it'll be one that makes sense, you know, objectively for Washington State. I will say, you know, going to the Big Ten and having five, you know, just like in the Pac-12, I, I assume five, you know, five home conference games one year, four home conference games the next year. I don't know that Washington can commit to playing in Pullman every other year and still leave open the possibility that they might play some other home-and-home type non-conference matchups. I don't know that the the schedule and the revenue that you need from having seven home games and everything will, will shake out, and it seems like Wazoo's pretty insistent on playing the Apple Cup in Pullman every other year, as they should be. I think it'd be weird if they, they played it any other way, but there's a, there's a lot to sort out on that front and, and a lot of feelings to sort through, understandably so. The Big Ten Conference, it, you know, different level of competition, especially at the top half of that conference. What does Washington need to do in your mind in the next year to two to really be ready to compete against a Michigan, Ohio State, and, and try to get to a playoff? Yeah, probably start winning more battles for, for some of these four-star recruits and some of the top recruits on the West Coast. And, you know, I, I'm sure they probably feel like this helps with that. That, you know, I think USC kind of thought it was going to have the market cornered a little bit on being able to tell California recruits that, hey, if you want to you want to play seven games a year on the West Coast and compete in one of the two major conferences, you got to do it at, at USC. And the only reason I don't include UCLA in that conversation is because they're so heavy in the portal. I, I don't know how many high school kids they're even going to take each year now, but. Um, you know, this, this puts Washington right in that conversation. And Oregon, you know, is coming along too. So it's, it's kind of going to be like it was before, where for those, those four-star kids, that skill talent, you know, those really heavily recruited kids in Southern California, even if they're staying out West, if you're Washington, you got to battle Oregon, you got to battle USC for them. But at least now, you know, you can, you can take, well, I don't want to play in the Pac-12. Well, I want to play in one of the two major conferences off the list of reasons why a kid wouldn't go to Washington. So I think that's the key. Continue to establish themselves as a premier destination on the West Coast that, hey, you can say you're going to have every bit of everything that USC and Oregon have in terms of resources down the road and, um, you know, continue continue to plug holes through the portal. I think they've done a pretty good job identifying positions where they need experience depth, where they might need a starter or two, and going out and getting a guy who can who can actually help them and who's actually really a value add. And they've they've their hit rate on those, that is pretty high so far. And you know, I think going to the Big Ten, you know, maybe you, you've got even a, a stronger pitch to those those type of um, recruits as well. Christian Capel on Montlake covers Washington football. Kalen DeBoer, coach, um, you know, great first year. We talk all about players and what they need to do better, what they can do better. Um, what is your sense on him? Is Has he got better footing, got his feet underneath him, the timing of the season? He's not fresh into the job and trying to put a program together. He's Now he's focused on continuity. Um, you know, your, your assessment of him in season two. Yeah, I was just telling somebody the other day, it feels like he's been there a long time. Um, and maybe that's just because the Jimmy Lake era was, such a blip and Kalen DeBoer I think does have in terms of culture and foundational priorities and those sorts of things a lot of similarities with with Chris Peterson so you know maybe maybe that's why it just sort of felt like from day one he he seemed like a really natural fit there and like he was right at home and you know I don't know from from the time he got there you know he right away convinced Romo Dunze and Jalen McMillan to stick around um recruited the the current roster pretty well there where I think there were 
a lot of guys they were probably looking at losing to the portal uh, if they hadn't made a coaching change. So, you know, he, he really hit the ground running and, you know, last season played out the way it did. And, um, yeah, I, this year, you know, we'll, we'll see what the defense looks like. I think that was kind of the, the jury was still out last year a little bit on Kalen DeBoer um, that, hey, the, the offense looks really good. Um, as as his reputation would have you think probably going into it. And, you know, obviously he knows that side of the ball and they were so uh, innovative and, and looked so efficient and put out such a great product. But they gave up a lot of points. They gave up a lot of passing yards. And they battled some injuries too. But, you know, did the, the personnel changes they made in the secondary this offseason shore up the depth so that they don't get stuck in a position like they did last year if a couple guys get hurt and, did they find some playmakers on that side of the ball who can really make a difference? And, you know, can they, can they scheme against some of these really good quarterbacks and passing attacks that they're going to see? So in terms of on the field, I think that's what, what everyone's sort of waiting to see. Um, the, the list of question marks on him is pretty short, though, for a guy who's only coached one season. Yeah, I think uh, what a remarkable first season. Uh, you've been at this a while. What, what is this program like to cover? How is access how does it compare maybe to a Chris Peterson or a Jimmy Lake program in your mind? Yeah, I should probably knock on wood when I say this, but it's, <laughs> uh, it, it's been about as good as it can be, honestly. I mean, just objectively speaking, um, they make several players available after every practice. They just let the media watch um, all every, every second of their first six practices here, and they'll have a couple others that are open. They're pretty much closed from here on out, but – um, you know, if, if you want to do a big feature on somebody, it's it's not real difficult to, to get them to work with you on, on setting up an interview and those sorts of things. And um, it's easy to take it for granted. You mentioned Chris Peterson. You know, Chris Peterson did a lot of things right and will be very fondly remembered by Husky fans for a lot of good reason. But, hey, for the media, you know, it was it was a tough program to cover a little bit at times because they're just there. There wasn't that uh, that openness. Um, so. It's it's a lot different than it was then. I think you know Kalen DeBoer kind of sees the media as a uh, you know a means to communicate with the fan base and a means to sort of get their their message out. And I think that when you're when you're confident in what you're doing internally and you you feel like you you've really got something there, you want people to know about it. And I think that they sort of have that confidence, and you can tell um, you know just. Even in conversations with players, it seems like guys are a little bit looser. Uh, there maybe isn't so much thought about saying the wrong thing or getting in trouble or anything like that. And um, it's it's really been um, it's been a different experience for sure. What game on the calendar is circled for Washington fans? I think there's two. I mean, always Oregon, right? Especially coming off of a bye week for both teams. You know, obviously, it seems like the Pac-12 prioritized making that a really premier matchup, and you know that should be a lot of fun. And November 4th at USC, although it doesn't have the same significance now that it's not going to be the last time that, that these teams face each other in the same conference because they're both headed to the Big Ten. But um, you know, reigning Heisman Trophy winner against Michael Penix Jr., who's going to be on everybody's short list for the Heisman going into the year. If both teams are are unbeaten or, or at least they'll only have one loss. You know that's going to have huge Pac-12 title implications. It's it's under the bright lights in LA and, and at the Coliseum, and there's always you know something special about that just just on its own. So um, I think you know first Oregon, you know people are are always going to be up for that game, especially after those two teams combined for such a classic last year, Eugene. But uh, a lot of people are thinking about that USC game too. 
I, I think Oregon fans, happy to see that game on the schedule, probably not happy about going to Washington. Under the radar, though, Washington has to go to Research Stadium in Oregon State. Be real with us. Don't be afraid to offend Oregon State fan. Is Washington thinking about that game at all? I mean, I think they should be. You know, if you're, if you're talking about games they should be thinking about based on how, how quality the opponents are. I know talking to Ryan Grubb, their offensive coordinator, the, the day after, I think, the Big Ten news broke. And he was just talking about the history of the Pac-12 and some of the tradition and you know how just how good the football is expected to be this year. And Oregon State was the first school that he mentioned. You know, they, they know how tough of, of an opponent the Beavers were last year. I think they only scored 24 points on them, needed a last-second field goal to beat them in a windstorm in Seattle. So, um, you know, they they remember that. You know, they know – they know the, the mind, the football mind that Jonathan Smith is, and, and we'll see what DJ Uyunglele can do for that offense this season. But, yeah, I, uh, you know, that, that's that's one game that I was looking forward to anyway because, they, like you said, the new Reacher Stadium, and we'll check that out. And it looks like the media tour, um, people came away pretty impressed, but a lot of more significance now knowing that that's the last time that, that they're going to face Oregon State probably for a while or, or at least as members of the same conference. Let me throw something at you, Christian, because there seems to be some new momentum for the Pac-4, Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State, to possibly make a run at staying together, add a couple of schools, and try to either be a group of six school that uh, tries to put a team in the playoff or maybe try to keep the A5 status and get an automatic uh, playoff berth. If that happens, if, if the Pac-12... As we once knew, it is over, but the Pac-12 still exists. Is there a clearer conscience for Oregon and Washington? Do they feel better about that, or is it a non-factor? Yeah, I don't know. I I think when you make a decision like going to the Big Ten and leaving the Pac-12 behind, you, you kind of have to be okay with owning whatever happens in your wake. Uh, so I, I would guess that that's their mindset, that, hey, you know, you, you you made the best decision for you and, and you did what you thought needed to be done. But yeah, I think, look, any future where Oregon state and Washington state can thrive as FBS members and legitimately compete for a playoff spot each year is good for college football. And any scenario where that's not the case is, is not good for college. It's not good for college football when the school in Pullman and the school in Corvallis aren't, aren't part of things. You know, there's so much tradition and, and history there. And, you know, those schools have shown throughout the, the years that they can sort of overcome the resource gap and punch above their weight. And, you know, shoot, Oregon State's doing it right now. They won 10 games last year. So, um, you know, maybe that does clear the conscience a, a, a little bit. But, um, gosh, it's what what a mess, huh? I mean, I, I, it's just there's so much to sort out there. And, yeah, I, I think – I don't think there's anybody who, who doesn't want to see those schools, you know, find a – a path to a, a viable future for their football programs and for, for their whole athletic department. Christian Capel, before I cut you loose, uh, you know, I mentioned you go on uh, Rogue, the pirate ship. I've launched my thing. You have on Montlake. How is it going? State of the Union, because I feel like it's one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah, it's um, it's going as well as I could have ever envisioned and probably even a little bit better. Um, it's it's past the point of, okay, is this going to be viable or not? You know, do I need to reevaluate this a year in and, and really more along the lines of, okay, how, you know, how, how high can we go? 
how far can I take it? So I'm, I've never felt better about an employment situation, frankly. Um, you know, it, it's one of those where, hey, yeah, you know, you wouldn't have left on you left the athletic to go out on your own, so you should be thanking them. And I don't know that I'm quite there, but uh, I'm I'm very pleased with the situation I'm in right now. Christian Capel on Montlake.com. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Good stuff. If you want to read him, his piece that he wrote today has no paywall. Once a week, he just writes to write. Anybody can read it. Go to onmontlake.com if you want to check that out. Coming up, uh, we got the 5 at 5 at the top of the hour. Stay tuned. Going to be a very, very interesting college football season. Maybe the most interesting and unique season in the history of certainly Pacific time zone football. With everything going on with the Pac-12, there's some real interesting stuff afoot with Oregon State, Washington State, Cal, and Stanford. Keep an eye on it. I'm trying to try to find out more in the next 24 hours, maybe the next 12 hours um, as uh, this stuff develops. But uh, I think there's a real urgency at Oregon State and other places to figure out, those three other places, to figure out where they're going to be, what they're going to do. You kind of need to know. need to know what's going to happen in 2024. Um, I reached out to Giotti Murthy, the president at Oregon State, um, and asked uh, asked her people if she wanted to come on the show. Not at this time was the response that I got. Um, she's in a different position because, you know, if we're watching presidents at, like, Washington, Oregon, Utah, um, some presidents uh, in other places like Arizona and Arizona State, all coming out and being part of news conferences. But they all know where they're going. They have something to talk about. Like Robert Robbins, the president at Arizona, is coming out and talking about the idea that, you know, hey, things didn't work out for him in the Pac-12 conference. And uh, and uh, now they're uh, they're pivoting a little bit. Right. You know, he was talking about everything that went on, why the Apple deal didn't work, the ultimate downfall of the conference. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, the whole the whole mindset of the CEO group. No, I, I was very confident. Um, market forces changes, the economy changes, the media companies we were just talking about, some of them went through some hard times. <clears throat> but all the while, I, I was confident that, uh, that we would get a, a deal that we would all like and it would keep us together. Uh, uh, so I, I think things didn't really change until right at the end. Um, but it, and it took long, uh, longer than I thought. I mean, I'm famously, infamously quoted as saying, well, I think we'll have something by tax day. I didn't say what year, but anyway. Uh, and, and so it took longer, and I think the longer it took, I, I actually thought the longer it took, the, uh, the more that the media companies could uh, turn their temporary bad fortunes around and come back to the table. The economy would get better. So I thought the longer we waited, uh, at least more recently, the better that would be. But there, there certainly um, came a time when we, we, we had to do it because I kept saying, oh, we got another year. We got another year. Well, now we're inside a year. Now they're inside a year. So are those other schools. Five at five is next. Beautiful day out there. Lots of great weather, sunshine, blue skies. I'm selling hope on today's show. Selling hope. 
Judah Newby in the chair. He's got the big five at five. He's all fired up, ready to do this. Judah, I haven't checked my lottery tickets yet. <laughs> what does that say about me? You're, buy, you're buying the hope that you're peddling, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Did, maybe I just buy the tickets for that reason. That I, maybe down deep, I know I'm more likely to get struck by lightning than, than I am than I am to win the Mega Millions. By the way, the the ticket was sold in Florida that won it. I was not in Florida, mm. unfortunately. Last time you went to Florida. Uh, uh, Oregon Ducks women's basketball team in the Final Four. It's down there in uh, Tampa. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You love Tampa. I forgot. You are. Yeah. You love Tampa uh, so Amelia much. Amelia Arena. You love that the, arena. My favorite barn. <laughs> the people in Tampa really thin-skinned. All I said was that if you put a cow. And a farmer out front of that arena, you would attract chickens and horses because they know that's a barn. <laughs> All I said was you could walk through that arena and you can hear the, like when somebody flushes the toilet on the on the concourse and you're down in the, uh, like the loading dock area, you hear it. It's like old plumbing at Amelia Arena. All I said was Veterans Memorial Coliseum looks like Madison Square Garden compared to Amelia Arena. That's all I said. And the people of Tampa got all offended and hurt, all upset, you know. That arena looks fat in those jeans. That's all I said. <laughs> it's not a great it's not a great arena. It's kind of an older you know, Tampa does a really nice job though. I gotta give them credit, like between us if they're not listening. Because I had fun kind of jabbing at them and they got all upset. You know, like the the late great Jim Murray, the Los Angeles Times sports columnist, pissed off people in in Cincinnati one time because he wrote in as the Dodgers were playing in Cincinnati, he wrote that if the Germans had invaded America, as they made their way across the country, when they hit Cincinnati, they would just keep going because they would have thought, oh, it's already been ransacked. You know that I didn't say that about Tampa. You know, I I just you know I just said eh, it's kind of a barn, and man, did those Lightning fan. They got mad, writing me letters, put me in their paper. The only other time I had that happen was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, years ago. I had a very similar thing. I was I uh, I had flown in to see a football game in Tulsa, and I had uh, decided about five minutes after arriving in Tulsa that the football game was kicking off at like 4 p.m. and there was like a 10 p.m. flight out of Tulsa, and I arrived that morning and I thought. I wonder if I could cover this game, not check into the hotel, change my flight, and fly out without ever sleeping in Tulsa. I was kind of like Larry Scott, the Pac-12 conference commissioner. He didn't want to go to Pullman or Corvallis. Um, and the famous story that I heard that I never got in print was Larry Scott's kid was playing club basketball. And the club basketball tournament, his kid was in the Bay Area, club basketball tournament was being held in Salem at the Hoop. Now, anybody who has a kid who has played basketball or volleyball in the state of Oregon knows the hoop. It's a great facility, bunch of basketball courts. It's also kind of in the middle of nowhere in Salem. You know, it's you get off the freeway. There's not a lot around it. You go to the venue. 
and uh, you watch your kid play, and then you know there, you've got you got restaurants in Salem, you got you know restaurants in Woodburn, but you know you're up and you're on you're in Interstate Five. Well, Larry Scott, the former Pac-12 commissioner, his kid was playing a tournament there, and Larry Scott told the other parents, "I don't want to eat in Salem," and he made everybody drive and stay back in Portland. And I thought that was pretty reflective of him. I, so I was trying to pull that act in Tulsa, and it didn't quite work. But I wrote about how it was all boarded up and there was tumbleweed on the street. And I said, psychologically, if you're a football player and you're coming into Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the middle of, like, October or November, and you are landing at the airport and then on a bus driving by a bunch of boarded up laundromats and other places, businesses, churches, and strip clubs on every corner, and then go into your team hotel, and then go in to play a game with like a hurricane warning going on or a tornado warning, whatever the natural disaster they have in Tulsa this week. And I said, that's got to be psychologically taxing. Well, the newspaper there in Tulsa, I think it's called the Tulsa World, and if you have to call yourself the world, you know that it's not global. You know, it's like, you know, International Airport in Topeka. It's, it, you know, come on. So the Tulsa paper printed the excerpt of my column. And I, and for, like, years I would get emails from and letters, handwritten letters, from angry people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who, damn it, love their little city. So, you know, I digress that uh, there's uh, there's something to love about most cities. But that Tampa, Tampa's a nice town. That Amelia Arena, it's a barn. It really is. I don't know why people got so mad at me. I remember that uh, we did this big thing, right, at the station at that time that we were trying to get the Rays out of Tampa because of their St. Pete situation, very similar to that Amelia Arena situation you were talking about. Because, yeah. you know, Tropicana, yeah. that's also a barn. And uh, we were trying to embrace the Rays and, and pull them over to Portland be our baseball team. And they loved that, too. They did not like me. They viewed me as um, public enemy number one in Tampa, which, by the way, just means that, you know, you got to watch your back until about 4.30 when everybody goes to bed. And, you know, that's all you have to worry about <laughs> if you're in Tampa. Like, that, like if you were going to be a mafia person, like you're going to be in the mob, Tampa would be the place to go because you would know at about, yeah, it's about 5.30, I'm safe now. They're all asleep. You know, it's that's how it is. That's why I drove over to the – to the trop or whatever that field is called and it's a hike like you have to go across a bridge it's hard to get to it it's kind of in the middle of nowhere and and i was like okay they have one venue one baseball stadium that's in a horrible location and then they have the arena that's downtown it's fine but i just thought for a women's final four and i think i would get some support for this now like times are changing for a women's final four it was kind of a small venue you had Baylor there, you had Oregon there, you had UConn there. You had some big brands that were part of this thing. And I'm sure, you know, they were all very cordial. And that was when Sabrina Ionescu, you know, they lose to, to you know, they lose their game. And and uh, Oregon's like, you know, going to get them next year. And Sabrina's coming back and all this stuff. But I remember the news conference, and Sabrina's in this news conference and she's talking. Somebody flushed the toilet, like upstairs in the arena. And Sabrina's on the podium, and all of a sudden you hear coming through the pipes. You know, it's like, come on. It's like, you know, it's a loading dock. 
Give us a real arena. Put the women's Final Four in a real arena, a nice arena, like in Portland, Oregon. And that's part of the problem. We were in Tampa. All right, let's do the five at five. The five at five. The number one story in Judah's mind is... I tell you what, this Phil Mickelson stuff's kind of wild, John. It's starting to come out today that Phil Mickelson bet more than $1 billion on sports wagers over the last three decades. Now, this is according to a guy named Billy Walters. He's writing a book that, um, you know, he's had some interactions with Mickelson. He's apparently placed some bets for Mickelson as well. His book's called Gambler, Secrets from a Life of Risk. And uh, he's basically saying that Phil bet over a billion dollars on sports wagers, including a $400,000 wager that he tried to place. He attempted to place a wager on Team USA in the 2012 Ryder Cup, in which... Mickelson participated, and also in which, John, you might remember this, the United States historically lost a lead to Team Europe. They had a 10-6 lead going into uh, Sunday's singles matches, and Phil Mickelson lost to Justin Rose, and Team USA lost the entire Ryder Cup to to the European side that day. And Mickelson apparently tried to uh, bet $400,000 on Team USA in that Ryder Cup, and he would have lost if he didn't make that bet would he have uh, though if he made the bet would he have played better would he have been more focused (laughs) i don't know maybe he was like ah there's not as much on this now that that rider cup that rider cup was 30 minutes from where i went to school and i was a sophomore at the time and i just remember being like i love the rider cup and i was just heartbroken that the united states lost that one now i think of it differently like uh that it could have had almost half a million dollars riding on it from phil mickelson well, we see it celebrated all the time when Floyd Mayweather or Drake or Phil Mickelson places a big wager. You know, there's a picket of the picture of their betting ticket and it goes on social media, or people say, "Oh, they have a big bet on the Super Bowl," or what. And we all kind of, we all kind of uh, hold it up as evidence, like, "Hey, they bet too," but that's too much money. It raises a lot of questions about, you know, what if you get upside down with your bookie? You know, are are, are you throwing wagers? Be are you throwing matches if you're Phil Mickelson? Um, it raises problems, concerns for golf, questions about Mickelson. He turns to the LIV tour for the, and takes the payout. Did he need it? Was he in financial trouble? Hmm. A lot of questions you, that that come up in this. He did release a statement saying, "Quote: I never bet on the Ryder Cup. While it is well known that I always enjoy a friendly wager on the course, I would never undermine." the integrity of the game. I've also been very open about my gambling addiction. Ugh. And uh, he, he's gone on to say that he's a reformed man, essentially. But Okay. Let's, let's bet on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number two story, as you see it. Number two story. You know, the 49ers and Raiders holding a joint practice. I know you mentioned this uh, with your Greg Papa story earlier, but, of course, that means that, one, Jimmy Garoppolo is – practicing against his longtime former team, the San Francisco 49ers. And he was asked about what he remembers about his time in San Francisco. Uh, it, was, it was wild, man. Uh, I was doing my thing, trying to get my foot ready. If it didn't work out, you know, how I wished it would have. Uh, but, you know, those guys going through three quarterbacks and still making it to the NFC Championship game, I mean, that's, that's damn impressive for a team. So I, I know Niners, you know, they got a great team and everything. We had a great time. Uh, you know, it's on Vegas now. But, yeah. I tried you those those times. Those are good times. Was there was there a sense that you pushed too? Yeah, he's 
said he cherished those times and uh, that he always appreciates that. He said it was also awkward when they drafted Trey Lance third overall in 2021. John, as a 49er enthusiast yourself, how do you remember Jimmy Garoppolo? Uh, le- un- underwhelming. I mean, overpromised, underdelivered. So much hype. I I just remember when the Niners got him, and I remember thinking Bill Belichick's pretty smart, right? I don't think Bill Belichick lets that guy get away if he thought he was the future of the organization. Bill Belichick's shrewd. You've seen what he's done with players on the defensive side of the ball who couldn't play anymore. He just cuts them. They win a Super Bowl, and he cuts them. So I kind of had to wonder, as Garoppolo exited New England, what nobody knew, like what was under the hood, what was between the ears, so to speak, with Jimmy G. Uh, I felt like he had all the tools. He was good enough and could have won a Super Bowl. The, the year that, you know, they obviously got there against the Kansas City Chiefs. He's like one play, one throw, Niners make a pick. You know, he's one play away from being a Super Bowl champion, and maybe it changes for him. But there were just so many moments where his confidence, his lack of confidence were evident on the field. And i got to be honest, Anna and I have been watching this quarterback documentary thing on Netflix. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. Patrick Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, even Marcus Mariota, especially Cousins and Mahomes, they've got it. There's an it that comes with being a quarterback in the NFL that has nothing to do with maybe their talent and more to do with kind of just the way they carry themselves, the confidence they have, the energy they have. Jimmy G never seemed to have that. He looked the part. He made some plays. But it was uh, felt to me a little bit like the Niners and the Oregon State Beavers were in the same position at different times where, you know, Jonathan Smith was trying to win in spite of the quarterback position and, and Kyle Shanahan trying to get success while knowing, hey, I might get 200 yards out of Jimmy Garoppolo today. I might, I might get three, but I might get 178 and a, one touchdown and one interception. So underwhelming. I'm glad he had this talk because I think for him this helps him. This joint practice helps Jimmy Garoppolo, I think, more than anybody because it, he won't have to answer this question again and again and again. It's like, you know, he and his ex ended up in the same place. Everybody asked questions about it, and now everybody can kind of move on. And I hope he does well, but, again, I think there's some problems in that Raiders organization. Number three. Well, all of us are still on Dame Watch. When is that Blazers-Miami trade or Blazers-somebody trade going to happen? But. Today, a different Blazer has put his home up on the market. Yusuf Nurkic has quietly put his West Lynn house on the market, JC, and his asking price, $4.595 million, $4,595,000. 28-year-old Nurkic has three years left on his contract. Is this a sign that he's uh, ready to move on from the Trailblazers or totally. John might be part of a Damian Lillard trade or at least a shrapnel from it? I think he's totally ready to move on. I think mentally, if he's not going to say it, that for sale sign certainly suggests that you know he's not viewing it as his forever place unless unless he's planning to buy his dream home. I just don't see it. I I kind of have felt all along that you know when he came to Portland, there were all the questions about Yusuf Nurkic in Denver and his work worth ethic and his professionalism. And I think he, in large part, erased some of that and most of it. But I also think like. He never really flourished in Portland. He, 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 he did well enough that I think Blazer fans love him. They got a lot out of him. 
You could count on him on most nights, but I kept waiting for him to take a consistent step forward where he would become, you know, a fringe all-star. Not an all-star, but a fringe guy that you would, in a given year where he's having a great year, you might talk about, gosh, he's having such a good year. How do you keep him off the all-star team as a reserve? But he never really took that step. And so I think there's something missing from his game. I think he's watching Damian Lillard asked to be out. He's seeing the rebuild, and he's going, I don't really fit here anymore either. But the question is, do the Blazers know what they want to be right now or who they are? And I don't know. I wouldn't read too deeply into it. Like, I don't know that Joe Cronin's telling Yusuf Nurkic you should put your house on the market. But I think Yusuf Nurkic is talking to his agent, and his agent's going, do you want to be here in Portland? He's going, no. All right, well, you might get stuck holding that house. Summertime, better time to sell your house than maybe trying to sell it in February. So I, I could see Nurk downsizing as a preventative move here. Number four. Well, the state of Iowa is continuing their gambling probe. They've took under four more Iowa State players and uh, four Iowa players as well that have been charged with underage betting, and some of them bet on games involving their own teams. Of course, we know Iowa State quarterback Hunter Deckers was one of those from last week. Their starting running back, their leading rusher last year, Jareel Brock, today he was among those who was uh, charged with underage betting, and they basically bet using DraftKings accounts under you know third-party names, a lot of them use their mother's uh, names and their mother's uh, financial information, apparently, to help make some of these bets. Uh, this running back, Brock, made a total of over 1,300 wagers uh, that totaled over $12,000 in wagered money. There's no uh, records on how much he won or perhaps lost, but he also bet in multiple games that he played in with Iowa State. There was even an Iowa State receiver that bet the under on a point total Ooh. in a bowl game that they played recently, John. I think this just all kind of underscores, man, we, we probably should have seen something like this happening. And as much as i am kind of been a proponent of college wagering becoming legal in our state, um, you know, we'd be foolish to think that it wouldn't happen at, at Oregon and Oregon State as well. Yeah, a couple things to unpack here. Number one, if if... College players nationally haven't figured it out. When you start placing wagers using apps that track your location, that know your device, that have uh, you know the ability with technology to trace back to uh, an individual, uh, if you haven't figured it out already, they, they, they know who you are, and they know where you are. And they are bound by state gaming commissions to report these things when they find them. And so I think this is the tip of the iceberg, but we have a bad combination here. We have legalized wagering, and we have really young people. And when you put those things together, I think you're going to end up with some problems. And, and, and I'm I'm a little bit surprised that a starting quarterback would be prob would be part of this, but I guess we shouldn't be shocked. And I think it's the tip of the iceberg. I think it should be, you know, I I think. It needs to be reaffirmed to all the players. Like, you know, don't use your mother's name. Don't use your roommate. Don't use your name. Don't use a pseudonym. Don't. You shouldn't be anywhere near this. This costs you your eligibility. Costs you your career. I'm really curious to see what happens as far as NCAA suspensions, banning players. I don't know. They're young people. They're doing stupid things. Number five. 
I'm not sure that we've talked about this a ton, but it's kind of heartbreaking what's going on in Hawaii and uh, oh. and Lahaina. And, uh, you know, there's been wildfires that have killed at least 53 people. Oh. Active recovery missions are c- continuing. And uh, Colin Morikawa, PGA professional, he's pledged $1,000 per birdie that he makes in the upcoming FedEx playoffs to aid recovery on Maui. Uh, most of the village of Lahaina was destroyed, and uh, President Biden has declared a national emergency. Uh, Morikawa said on Instagram that Maui has always held a special place in my heart. My grandfather owned a restaurant called the Morikawa Restaurant on Front Street in Lahaina. People mm. of Hawaii are going to need all the support we can give them. During the course of these playoffs, I am donating $1,000 for every birdie that I make. We uh, we took a vacation there in December. We were there oh, for a wow. couple weeks. Wow. And we uh, we walked around. We ate at a restaurant, Kimbo's restaurant, right down in there. Great fish tacos, great little restaurant. But walking around down in that area, it's um, you know a lot of older structures, a lot of wood, um, and then you throw in the combination of the high winds that you sometimes get in on the islands, and it's a really bad combination of uh, you know if any wildfire or whatever caused the start. Do they know what caused the start of the fires? Do they have any evidence that I, I've seen wildfires, I've seen, you know, but I always think, too, there's, um, you know, things easily get out of control if a small fire starts. But really sad. Um, it really gives perspective to all the stuff that's going on with the Pac-12 and all the other stuff in sports that we think is important. Today, as I was, like, writing about the Pac-12 and thinking about the destruction and the devastation of the Pac-12 and what happens to Oregon State, what happens to Oregon, this stuff feels really big. And then uh, my Twitter feed, I would see, here's downtown Lahaina, and here's what it looks like now, and it's unrecognizable, and there's flames, and there's people who have lost loved ones, and there's people who have lost all their property, and there's people jumping into the ocean to try to save themselves from the smoke and the fire, and the Coast Guard's trying to find people in the water, and it gives you that life perspective that I think we all need. And so thank you for putting it in the five at five. And I think, you know, I'm thinking about people there and, you know, I, uh, I don't have birdies that I can make, but I can tell people that, you know, if you uh, find an organization that is a good organization that can help people in Lahaina, tweet it at me. I'll give it a retweet. And I think we should uh, raise some awareness there and just hoping for all the uh, rescue personnel too, who are running towards the flames and, helping save people and helping uh, medical personnel there who are dealing and helping with people who are fighting for their lives. And my thoughts are with them as well. I want you to leave it here. Coming up, uh, John Wilner and I, on that note, a loss of perspective and all, will be uh, talking about um, the Pac-12 conference. He and I do a podcast called Konzano and Wilner, the podcast. We recorded it right before the show today, and he had some interesting thoughts on what happens next to Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal. I want to share that coming up. Who wins uh, NFL preseason game tonight? Who you got, Judah? You got a you got a dog in the fight? Do you care about the winners? See, Hawks. <laughs> but, Are you that guy? No, I'm not. I kind of forgot we were playing tonight, but yeah. I'm also, you know, it does do a little something for me. I will say that the result doesn't matter, but just the yeah. fact that there's football it's on TV is cool. It's a game. 
We could stop talking about the other stuff. Yeah. By the way, your Niners play Sunday. I looked that up because I'm kind of intrigued to see uh, how many snaps Jack Coletto gets. To Mm. me, that's a really interesting piece there. I don't know if he'll make the roster, but. No, don't bet against him. Yeah. Won't do it. He's a very creative player. He's a very diverse talent. Swiss Army knife, so to speak. I think Oregon State will use DJ Uyengalele the same way. I think Mm. short yardage situations, I think he's going to be the Jack Coletto threat. Uh, I, I think that's a given, yes. given his size. Look at Jonathan Smith. He'll he'll find a way. Um, speak on that note, I want to talk about the Wilner, Conzano, Conzano, Wilner podcast. Uh, if you don't already subscribe, it's on iTunes, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get a podcast, you can catch, catch it. We do a weekly podcast. We uh, find uh, a topic to kick around and you know, today we recorded a podcast right before this show, and I, as I was recording it with him, I was like, damn, you know, I hate to bring it back on the radio, but that's a great conversation. We got on a conversation about Larry Scott, the former Pac-12 commissioner, who, Champagne Larry, who I didn't like. I did not like his style. It wasn't personal. I didn't like his style. I wasn't a big fan of him. But I also know that, like, he was a shrewd negotiator who was a um, self-preservationist. He wasn't going to let himself be caught on the Titanic. And George Klyovkov did. And I kind of wonder what went wrong between those two. As you pivot and you're the Pac-12 conference, you leave Larry Scott in the rearview mirror, you're trying to hire a new commissioner, and you hire George Klyovkov, you hire a collegial guy who's smart, who comes from the media world, he's very collaborative, he is engaging. He's, you know, a softer personality. They made a course correction there. But in the end, not the guy you want in a knife fight. Uh, also, Wilner and I talked about what happens next to the four remaining schools. I want you to just listen to this little clip. And it starts with me setting Wilner up, and he starts talking about what realignment is. He called it a knife fight. Realignment is is a, a knife fight, like I mentioned last week and the Pac-12 on a lot of fronts did not seem ready for that the urgency lack of willingness to push back against negative publicity you know the moving the room the the boardroom that it certainly did not seem uh up to the task on a lot of fronts but man, I don't know because Larry Scott was all about Larry Scott. I know that's why they're in this. That's why they're in this position in the first I know, place. I know the guy that painted him into the position. But I kind of think if you put Larry Scott's back to the wall and you say you're not going to have a job, you're not going to exist, you know, make sure the conference stays together. I kind of think the conference stays together. But it, you know, I wish it wasn't an either or in that situation. But I think the correction to Klyovkov actually hurt the CEO group. They didn't have somebody in that room who would push back who was shrewd, who, um, you know, they had a very collegial, collaborative, you know, I'm sure when they told him, go back and ask for $50 million, he knew, he knew that 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 probably wasn't a good negotiating tactic, and yet oh, he took sure. the deal to ESPN, and I'm told that ESPN's response was, quote-unquote, goodbye, and they never really reengaged as a serious partner. Yeah. Uh, no, they didn't. Uh, it doesn't seem like, at least until until this spring or summer, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, but let's get back to May. What is I'm, I'm lost. The, everything rolls together in no. my head. May of May of 21. And they well, June, uh inauguration day, 20, 
21, right? Same day Biden's inaugurated, five o'clock that day, Larry Scott announces he's stepping down or the Pac-12 announces he's stepping down. We spent, what, five months talking about, and I wrote about this ad nauseum, the need to hire a commissioner who had a background in college sports, who could hear the whispers in the wind, who could anticipate the next chess moves, who could, who had the relationships to get things done and to get the vital information, who just understood where college sports and college football in particular was headed. And what did they do? Did they hire somebody with that experience? No, they went outside again uh, with with Turnkey as their their search firm. They went outside the college sports and hired, uh, you know, the CEO of MGM Sports and Entertainment, a very accomplished businessman, obviously bright guy, likable guy. Was he the right guy for this endeavor? Which was the only endeavor for them, right? This was, it was all about hiring a commissioner who was going to get the media deal done, preserve the conference, set it up for success. Did they hire the right guy for that, this job? I mean, certainly it doesn't seem like they did, right? For whatever reason, it doesn't seem like they did at all. It was a giant whiff on their part with the search and with what they prioritized in the search. And th- so who pays for it? The fans, the the athletes, the coaches, because this whole thing has dissolved. They completely missed with pairing the right, you know, the right person for the job with what the job was going to take. I also think, and it's yet another whiff. That's the thing. It's just one of fifteen or twenty catastrophic decisions that they have made. You know, over the last ten, twelve years, starting with. The, you know, uh, the Pac-12 networks, f- wholly owned by the schools, seven, seven networks, all those expenses, total, totally overshooting their audience. It's just lined up like, like airplanes on the runway, just sitting there waiting to take off all these strategic mistakes. And, you know, I think that, uh, under different circumstances, you know, Kliakov would have been the right hire, but, uh, clearly under these circumstances for what they needed, it doesn't seem like it just seems like they got it. They got it all wrong. Yeah, he would have been fine. He would have been fine with strong lieutenants who could help manage the room or with a consulting firm that really could push back when the presidents and chancellors were saying, hey, um, you know, this is how we view ourselves. I also think you have a problem in that room and that Oregon State had a new president. You saw a turnover at Utah. You had Oregon with three different presidents after Michael Schill left two interims and and uh, John Carl Schultz, who comes in, um, you had a lot of people in that room that didn't know, I think, it, much of the history, didn't know much of the, uh, you know, the landscape. And it was like, I, I think they continued to have to try to update everybody. OK, we got a new member now. Let's let let's figure out what's going on. And I think that caused that negotiating team that was formed by the consulting firm to to draw the circle very close and then and just say, we will give you periodic updates. Now, periodic updates were not enough. The presidents and chancellors should have been demanding all along to know the status of the negotiation, not just an update. We want to know the numbers. Where, where are we at? Do we not? Have, because it came as a surprise to them. By the time they, you know, they Klofkov's lost the room. He unveils the Apple deal. He's asking him to have faith and take a leap. He's been asking him to have faith and take a leap for like 10 months. 
And by then, I think they were just kind of all rolling their eyes. Colorado just couldn't get out of the room fast enough. Arizona schools were, were right behind them. Oregon and Washington, we want to take a bet on ourselves? Do we want more of this uncertainty, or are we going to take what the Big Ten's going to offer? I don't think it becomes a tough decision at that point. And now you've got what do the, the four schools that I feel the worst for, Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State, what the hell do they do? You know, you dove into some of this. What happens with that group of four? Four board members left in the room. And, they're, you know, I'm sure they're not looking to George Klyovkov for the answer here. But what happens, Wilner? What's going on in that room? Uh, there's a lot of talking among the four schools. I don't know how much engagement there is with the, the conference office at all. And and speaking of engagement, you know, what you said about how the, the presidents, you know, were kind of content just getting very – uh, superficial updates and kind of not being engaged, but that is typical of them. They have been disengaged for 12 years, which is why they're in this whole problem. I mean, it's the last 13 months encapsulate the last 13 years with at the, at the presidential level, right? It's just, oh my God, it's just so, so just such horrendous leadership. So, What's happening now is there, you know, I think Oregon State and Washington State are in a little bit of a holding pattern here. They're waiting to see if Cal and Stanford are going to leave. They're, those schools are, are desperately trying to get in the ACC and the Big Ten. I think what they'd love is an offer from the ACC that they could then take to the Big Ten and say, you want us or not. Uh, and if they, if they don't, uh, get in either of those conferences, I, I think there's a pretty good chance that they will uh, try to reform the league with with the Beavers and Cougars. And you start with the Pac-4, and then you begin adding schools uh, for next season and for 2025. There's a lot of pieces that are unknown, right? The, how much money they've got to to uh, brandish, you know, to get other schools in. Who Who is going to lead the media rights negotiations? What kind of deal could they get? Uh, what are the liabilities? You know, can they made somehow maintain their autonomy five status, which I am skeptical of? Yeah, there's uh, a thousand things they've got to answer, but none of none of the answers are coming until uh, we know if Stanford and Cal are, are sticking around or not. All right. There it is. You want the rest of that podcast? We went for about 48 minutes talking about the various possibilities. It's Gonzano and Wilner, the podcast. You can get it on uh, Apple, Google Play wherever you get a podcast, search for it. But it, it raises a question, like, let me ask you this, Judah, before we go to commercial break here. Um, Stanford and Cal do not want to be in the Mountain West Conference. They have, uh, they have made that abundantly clear. And I think as I called around and talked with sources in the Mountain West Conference, they also are looking over going, we understand they don't want to be caught dead in our conference. If you're Oregon State and Washington State, how long can you afford to wait before – you kind of have to do something with the Mountain West, or is it a total fallback option? And for now, you just go, we are planning to rebuild, and we're with Stanford and Cal until we're not. Well, I got to ping it back to you for a quick second, because is the Mountain West, would they just take them at any time? Because I know you were talking a little yesterday that there was this just a tinge of hesitancy out of yeah. uh, that conference. Tinge. Not okay. enough to keep it away, but... I heard from one athletic director in the conference that there was some pushback as they discussed Oregon State as an addition. It was, gosh, do we really want to bring Oregon State into this conference? They're not going to add a ton of media rights value, and they're going to beat everybody's brains in for a couple of years at least until 
sort of the resources balance out. I mean, Oregon State in the Mountain West Conference would be an absolute monster. And, you, you know, you talk about Boise State having an advantage. All of a sudden, Oregon State would be the advantage. Mm-hmm. But then as I talked to others, that they, they said, yeah, it came up, but it's not a deal breaker. It was just a topic of conversation. They, they still see. And I had one athletic director say, hell, you're getting the Portland TV market. It would be the best TV market in the conference. And, you know, I, and I think that matters in their mind. But I think if I'm Oregon State, you tell me if I'm crazy. I would want to be with Stanford and Cal because going to the Mountain West, you're waving the white flag. And I'm not saying you don't do that eventually, but for me, the Mountain West Conference is like the life raft. First, I'm going to try to make sure that I've got another option, but I'll keep the life raft within view. Uh, and I think the Mountain West would take them if you know if mm-hmm. it was a month from now and and you know they wanted to go there. I don't know. You tell me. Am I no, crazy? I think you're. I think that's right on the money. There's nothing about the um, you know the conference consolidation that I trust long term. Now I could be naive. Maybe this is just the evergreen direction we go for 20 years. But deep down, I feel like what David Shaw told you at Media Day last year will come back to roost, and that is geography will have its way in five, seven, maybe ten years from now. And so with that prism, with that kind of view in mind, I think that for Oregon State, you're, you're, you know, the Ducks, the Huskies, you are on a boat together in the middle of the lake, and then they jumped onto a party yacht that just zoomed past you and left you on this boat. Oh, and by the way, they took your paddle with you. You know, they they left you without, and now you got to hop from lily pad to lily pad to get to shore, but... You can't get to shore right away. There's not a long-term result right away. you got to find yourself a nice intermediate lily pad. And if that's the $4 million lily pad of the Mountain West, then great. But if it's the $10 million lily pad of staying together with Cal and Stanford and bringing in SMU, bringing in San Diego State, absolutely you do that. Because I, I don't know how the revenue works. I don't know exactly what thresholds they are trying to do to salvage this thing. But... Scott Barnes, Giathi Murthy, they got to be talking about situations in which they are cutting sports, depending on what kind of you know revenue number they can hit in this next two-year window. You know, gymnastics could go. I mean, all, all these things are have got to be on the table. So I don't know what the number that they're hoping to get is, but if it's ten million, then obviously the the best option is to stay with Cal, Stanford, and Wazoo and try to add a couple teams along the way. Yeah, we know what the Mountain West deal is. Boise State gets more money than anybody. They're at five point eight million. So that's the ceiling. You know, maybe if you're Oregon State, you're getting seven. Oh, if you come in, maybe that's better than four. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I think if Oregon State lined up with Cal and Stanford, and you could add SMU and Rice, you're at six now. Uh, you can you add San Diego State and Tulane, get to eight, and, and without getting too watered down. That's about as far as you go, because once you go beyond that, you start having to go, well, how about Colorado State? How about UNLV? And you start to feel like the Mountain West Conference. But it's, I don't think I think Stanford is the decision maker. Stanford will, will eyeball all the candidates and go, are they good enough? Do they add value? And I think you can say SMU does, and you can say San Diego State does, and it gets dicey after that. And But I think if you're Oregon State, you, you try to stay with that as your plan A, and then you go in another direction. Leave it here. You know, it keeps coming up more and more as we talk about sports and maybe some of the gambling things that are going on in sports is the idea that people are getting in trouble with gambling. You know, we've had uh, Phil Mickelson. How, what did he 
How much did he bet? A billion dollars? A million? A trillion dollars? How much is he wagering? Yeah, so this author is saying over a billion over a 30-year span. It's a lot of money. It's a little bit. By it's a little bit, a... I mean a lot. Yeah, exactly. Is Phil buying Mega Millions tickets in Florida? I don't know. Trying to break even? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a problem. Now you got college kids that are wagering. I don't know, man. It's uh, it's interesting. I've been poking around the state of Oregon just to see what's going on with legalized wagering in Oregon and stuff, and finding some things out. I'll, maybe I'll talk more about that on tomorrow's show. Um, do you think it's? Do you think this is going to be an ongoing thing that this is just how it is, or do you think college athletes, pro athletes, will understand like that this is a bad look and? Mm. Or is it just that's addiction and that's young people? Mm. Ah, good question. I think it will probably become less rampant as it, more stories like this become public, as long as the disciplines are harsh. Like these Iowa State and Iowa guys, they could lose eligibility completely, right? I mean, and and their big thing was number one, they bet under the age of twenty-one, so that's a criminal offense in Iowa. Um, but they also bet on their own team. So that's that brings the NCAA part into it, and they could lose their eligibility. So it's kind of a, a two-edged sword. So I think we'll still see these stories. My hope is that they become less rampant you know, as they become more public. But at the end of the day, I really have no idea. And I just I would hate to see Ducks or Beaver players, you know, tied up in this if and when it, it came to that. If So how do you play defense about- if you're Dan Landing, if you're Jonathan Smith? Like, how do you play defense with – Young people, and sometimes young people just do things because their brains are not developed. And, oh, by the way, you have legalized wagering. And, oh, by the way, you're on the platform. And, you know, this, I I guess, if you could go door to door, you could find people that are doing stupid things. Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, you got to have captains that are the strongest of captains on your team. I know coaches love trusting their captains to kind of police the program themselves. But how do you do it? I mean... It's available on your phone. You know how often these kids are on their phones. Now, of course, in Oregon, DraftKings is you know doesn't have college sports yet because it's not legal in, in this state. But if and when it came to that, I really have no idea how you'd be able to police that in total um, outside of just you know trying to make sure that you ha- you're always asking everybody, your captains are, are you know going around, your position coaches are doing what they need to do. But I don't know how you can completely make sure it's eradicated from your program. I'm geeking out on this, but, uh, you know, the brain does not finish developing and maturing in people until you hit 25, 28, in some cases, 29, 30. <laughs> and and the, the part of the brain behind your forehead, the prefrontal cortex, is the last part of the brain that is developed, okay? And it it is tied to planning your personality development. Sometimes it can be self-awareness, um, your capacity for problem-solving, memory, decision-making, social behavior. Does it, like, this is why, you know, you go on TikTok and you see somebody who's 22, 23 years old on a balcony doing a keg stand and you go, ooh, bad look, bad judgment. There, you know, the prefrontal cortex is involved in this. Hashtag prefrontal cortex. So you've got underdeveloped brains and you've got, hey, here's a phone. Let me put it in your hand. And oh, by the way, you can use your mom's ID to sign up for an account at 
DraftKings or FanDuel or whatever. And oh, by the way, hey, everyone else is wagering on these games you're playing in, and you happen to know more about them. I mean, there's just some judgment stuff involved here that maybe we shouldn't be surprised by. The fact that we got young people, we got phones in their hands, we're involved in games that in other states people are wagering on. Does it, like you mentioned earlier, it gives you pause in the state of Oregon that the state legislature has not legalized wagering on college sporting events. Is this a topic of conversation? We know why they haven't legalized it. They haven't legalized it because the tribal casinos have paid lobbyists to block it. They haven't. They're, they're not sitting here, like lawmakers are not sitting here going, well, we're not sure about young people. But maybe they should be thinking about the young people. Well, I, I want it to happen, selfishly, for the content and just, you know, love to legally, you know, place wagers on college sports teams. But I'd be lying if I thought that I don't have serious pause because of this. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't know, man. There's some conflict there that uh, I still got to process. Keep an eye on that story. As it develops. All right, we're back with another great show tomorrow. You can read me at johnconzano.com. The bald faced truth, of course, is not here for a long time. Just a good time. Appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. Stay safe out there.